Since I was a, but a young child, uh, never before have my sports emotions changed as quickly as they did yesterday. They went from before the game, that incredible montage of this incredible rivalry between two historic franchises. So on the phone of my dad, he was just elated to see it. And to feel the way I did just 20 minutes later, like my soul had exited my body. It's only now starting return in bits and pieces as we get more and more positive news on John Tavares. Never in my life have I experienced visually and audio-wise through television a more eerie scene. And secondarily, never in my life have I had the contrast of emotions as quickly and as suddenly as I did yesterday. That's exactly right, and that's exactly how everybody else felt. I think of both fan bases. I think of all people that watched that game last night was, you're right, that montage was perfect. It was incredible. The game starts and all your fears about the impact of no fans dissipate immediately because it's almost like both teams were forced to watch that montage right before puck drop as well. They all seem to understand the gravitas of this matchup, what this means to the country, what this means to these two fan bases, what it means to the sport. And there were hits. There was that initial pace, that frenetic pace that you see when teams enter the Stanley Cup playoffs. And what makes the first round so special, right, is like you get to this spot where all of a sudden the stakes change so drastically and the very best of the sport presents itself. And it was joyous. It really was. Like, it was nerve-wracking in the best possible way. And then the Tavares injury happens. And and there was just no other way to describe it other than feeling sick. I felt sick. I think everyone felt sick. You just stared at your television. There was that initial moment where, like, he tries to get up. And he falls backwards. And that ruined everything. Like, that ruined everything you just you felt terror you felt like oh you don't normally see that that's not the run of the mill shooken up the play was so violent the way so i called my brother after the game and we talked on the phone and we were talking about how one of the most famous knockouts in the ufc now is jorge masvidal knocking out ben askren with a flying knee how fast do you think jorge masvidal was running at Ben Askren. And Ben Askren's coming forward, for those of you that don't know it, Ben Askren was coming forward in this fight, and Jorge Masvidal hits him with a flying knee that knocks him clear unconscious. You gotta figure that Corey Perry's going 20 kilometers faster than Ben Askren ate a flying knee from Masvidal. And when you get hit with something like that in a sport, in a combat sport, they put you on medical leave for a minimum amount of time to avoid further damage. And I just, I think everybody just sat there in horror knowing that this series that people had waited for for so long was changed. Whether Tavares was going to be healthy, that's the kind of injury where you feared all of the worst things, man. Like, it was awful, and it was just impossible to get back into the game the same way. I can't imagine what the players were going through on both sides. I thought that it kind of normalized a little bit after Nylander scored the second or the, the second goal of the game, the game-time goal for the Leafs, but 
Yeah, I'll admit that I just I felt rattled during the entire game, and I still feel rattled about it now. I thought it was really interesting to hear Mike Zygamanis in the morning show talk about it from his perspective, somebody who suffered some pretty severe concussions throughout his career. And he said something that I didn't fully go down the line of thinking, but certainly for the rest of that first period, I was like, can we just end this first period? But he said the thing that I – there was a thought in my head. I was like, if I wasn't working, like if this wasn't my job right now, would I be able to even watch the rest of this hockey game the way I feel? And I'm just being honest. Like I, 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 It was just a sickening, sickening feeling. And we did get back to normal. The rest of that first period, I couldn't tell you what happened other than Montreal Canadiens scored apparently. Like it was just – it was a blur. A blur. And the, and the, and the the Leafs were completely out of it, and I cannot blame them one iota. And they they looked pretty leafish though for the second period, which I give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And again, the news is pretty positive on the John Tavares front today. Apparently, tests are all going well, and he's communicating fine. He's still in hospital though. But yeah, that's the type of injury. I, again, like I've we've been watching sports our whole lives. We've seen horrific, horrific injuries, man. We've we've mm-hmm. seen people. Their, their lives have been changed by injuries we've seen on the field of play in a multitude of different sports. That's um, I, I can't remember one that looked that way and made me feel that way and had like some of the words that were coming out of my mouth just instinctually. I, I just do not remember it. I, I, I can't. And like maybe that's an in-the-moment thing. I just cannot. And it was only aided in that feeling by the lack of fans, which is... It's eerie even when there's fans in the building because everybody shuts up and you can hear a pin drop in that moment, but at least like there's the subtle muttering mm-hmm. a- around that you can hear that's picked up by the the parabolic microphones. It was dead silent. And I Chris Cuthbert and Craig Simpson did exactly what they should have done was just like silent for as long as possible just chipping in when there was something they noticed that was not being brought up by the cameras, but it made the whole scene it, it was like out of a horror movie, and it it's it, <laughs> we've been through so much over the last year, and it really felt like we were all leading up to this culmination of sports when everything's starting to get back to normal, and hopefully we can get back to there, especially when we get really good positive news from John Tavares. But it was uh, as sick and as empty a feeling as I've had watching sports. I I do believe the news is positive enough where people should be able to kind of check some of it because I, yep. I, we I, I, well, I think everybody plays doctor in a moment like that. Mm-hmm. And it's hard not to look at something, especially when you saw the blood and you have to wonder where exactly it's coming from and the way he know. fell backwards and, and you start to fear things like broken Ooh. neck, something in his back, something in his spine. Uh, yeah, it just, it, and, and there was this moment too, where they kept saying that, Guys were trying to calm Tavares down or trying to keep him down and stuff, and you couldn't really see because there's too many bodies around. So your yeah. mind is doing the hurdles of what exactly is going on. You're playing out all these scenarios. It was terrifying. And uh, okay, so I I really do hope Tavares is all right. I'm, I'm not a religious person, so I was going to say I pray, but I just I really I really 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 felt sick for the guy, sick for his family. Seeing the thumbs up was. Yeah, you're right. That was about as much relief as I've felt seeing an injury in a really long time. Yeah. Um, if all, 
if all of the initial reports lead to, hey, this guy dealt with trauma, obviously it's going to take him some time to get back, but normal just concussion protocol. And I don't mean to make light of that because, again, you know, when you're talking about um, head injuries and we've heard stories about, like, Chris Pronger and what he's gone through, it, our friend Mark well, Savard, what he's gone through, what Mike Zygamanis has Mike gone through. Mike Zygamanis, yeah. Right. It's, it, it, I'm not going to downplay it, but I just mean that it – yeah, obviously to avoid things like broken neck or career-risking injury to that area of the body, you you have to assume that that's going to give some measure of relief to the Leafs because that's what I, I couldn't get over is those guys who are friends with him sitting in that dressing room during the intermission waiting for a report to find out whether he's okay or not, whether he's you know, just going to be healthy enough to resume normal life, not just hockey, that that would just be so heavy and so weighty. And I don't know how many words can be said. And we've, we've got a bunch of former players on today, including one that was just on the Leafs and who has delivered powerful um, messages to a room in Patrick Marlowe. But yeah, it was just, again, it was just awful. It was really, really hard to kind of get back into that hockey game and to feel like that just wasn't hanging over the entire series. And I'll say this too, like, Assuming John Tavares gets back and is healthy, and I don't mean this series, but just, you know, eventually. I just felt sick for him, too, knowing that this is an Ontario guy who came back to the Leafs, who's the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who lives for this moment. He's a hockey yep. guy. He's just yep. through and through. That's who he is. It's why he is giving back to his community through hockey. It's why he came back here in the first place for moments like this. And so... There's also just a part of me that feels like, damn, this guy just being robbed of a, a chance to put himself into history books in a way that isn't through an injury was an awful and an unsettling feeling, too. I felt for Corey Perry. I did not think it was intentional. I think no. the thing that was very, very overlooked was Sherratt, and everyone says that he couldn't get out of the way or was unavoidable. I thought he stuck out the knee, and that, like, again, I'm not someone who played the game, but... That, to me, for a guy like Sherratt, who was running around all game and clearly was trying to play on the edge, was a little overlooked. And when something egregious like that happens, it you don't really want to point fingers and you don't really want to start to say, well, what was intentional and what wasn't. I, I have to believe that Corey Perry, you know, I had some people saying they thought it was intentional and that these guys have incredible body control and blah, blah, blah. You look at that thing, it's split-second no. play. No. And I, I don't, I don't believe any person is. I, I don't want to live in a world where I believe that Corey Perry would do that intentionally. They know, you know each like, other. They're yeah, Ontario but it, guys. Regardless, and, uh, yes. It, it, and whether Corey or not you Perry's know someone, history. Yeah. Sure. Okay. That that everybody's initial reaction is going to be, well, yeah. that must have been. And watching it in slow motion mm -hmm. is doing a disservice. In in regular speed, there no, is no human way. That, yeah. that could have been intentional, that the synapses could have fired in his brain to have seen where John Tavares' head was and to make that decision to do that. No. It's a complete fluke play. It's a fluke play. It's a horrific play. The human body can do incredible things, though, because, yeah, like that, he's going to hopefully, holy cow, be all right from, like, a, outside of a concussion perspective uh, is remarkable because that's, that's as violent uh, a head movement as I've seen. So it was awful, it was sickening, and it took everybody out of a moment, which was incredible, this idea that these two franchises that are linked historically the way that they are, these two sweaters that are on the ice, the stakes of all of this game, the pace of play, everything, 
was also taken away just immediately. I do believe the series will get back to feeling that way. Yeah. And that, again, Tavares' health is something that everybody cares about. But I, I also believe that a lot of the feeling was Leafs fans especially feeling as though this franchise is just cursed. That you get into this matchup, you have a season like this, and you lose John Tavares, who I believe is the team's second most important player. I know Mitch Barner played something ridiculous like 27 minutes last night, and they really leaned on him, and he had an incredible season. But if we're just talking about like who's the most irreplaceable, right? Like how you create any somewhat uh, of what John Tavares provides you in minutes, he and Austin Matthews are 1A and 1B. Jack Campbell was phenomenal in that game. You feel much better about the drop-off between Jack Campbell to Freddie Anderson. You feel much better about the drop-off from basically anybody on the blue line to Travis Dermott or whatever than like maybe Jake Muzzin or the way TJ Brody played. And I want to get to Morgan Riley later too, but he's just an irreplaceable guy. And so that hung over things as well. Just, you know, feeling hopeless, feeling lost, especially when that puck goes into the back of the net and it's one nothing, and you're going down in a period and you know the Leafs have to scrape and claw their way back and cobble together minutes. And in fact, the first goal happens because they put Joe Thornton in as the second line center and he throws a horrific turnover into the middle of the ice that goes the other way. And then Zach Bogosian, who does not look like he has his legs, was never really fleet of foot anyways, but did not look, he looked especially slow in that game, gets completely burnt. And another freak thing where it's Jack Campbell's playing a, a stick, trying to clear it from the round the hash marks, and he doesn't really get back to his net the same way. It's a bit of a scramble drill, not a bad goal, but one where you just do wonder if he has his position and he has his net, whether or not he makes a save there. Josh Anderson was great in that game, though. Sure. Josh Anderson was great. A lot of the Canadians players played well. But that hung over it as well. It just did. And and I don't think that's not an unfair thing to say. I think that even Tavares would, would admit that. That that feeling of the Leafs being cursed and the Leafs just, you know, being down in the series and the Leaf anxieties all pouring up to the front, that it all plays a part of it. If this is a front runner franchise, People just feel differently in that moment. This is a really, really important time for the franchise and for the fan base. And to lose Tavares and to have those images and then to have that feeling of being down, oh, like being down a game and losing your captain. And <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's an awful feeling. It really, really is. And, and so I, I can totally understand and empathize with fans right now who are dealing with all those emotions that you deal with typically at the end of a series, like all the way up front. I'll anyway. add the caveat. I'll add the caveat now, which applies for the rest of time, and obviously doesn't need to be said. But I've, John Tavares' health is first and foremost. And we're going to talk about hockey, right? Yes. We, obviously emotional, but the, the caveat is obvious. But I'll say it for people who need it to be said. But I really need my Twitter analytics to find out if this is my most liked tweet of all time because I tweeted exactly that. The kind of game that that was makes you wonder about the impact of the supernatural on the franchise. It's like everything that could have conspired where this team has this most positive season ever they do all the things that make you think that they're ready for the moment and this is gonna be different and then within minutes of the most anticipated playoff series since the lockout mm -hmm. first playoff series against their historic rivals since 1979 within minutes your soul is sucked out of your body mm -hmm. the captain is almost decapitated on the ice 
the second most important player, because I think you're right, like, who, so what, now Alex Kerfoot is centering your second line? Like, that's the drop-off in whatever they're going to get on that second line from John Tavares, who's a 47-goal scorer in the National Hockey League, is abominable. The power play, which actually looked good the first couple of times on the ice with Rasmus Sandin, fell off a cliff, gives up the back-breaking, game-winning, mm-hmm. shorthanded goal. Carey Price looks like old Carey Price. There's literally not a thing that you can talk about in that game that isn't like, oh, well, yeah, no, that's the absolute worst-case oh, scenario. No, I can't. Um, and and I'm going to start to spin it in some positive ways here in a second because I, I think people need to hear that, and I actually think that people believe that. So you're right. The Tavares loss is massive. There's just there's no understating how awful it is losing an $11 million captain who centers uh, your second line for over 18 minutes a night. There's just not. And and like going from him to a cavalcade of Thornton and Kerfoot and and Huzitz and hoping and that it's... maybe it's going to be Spezza when Spezza takes two penalties in that game and just did not look yeah. very good at all. It's it's there's no good options here, right? There's no good options. If there were, then whoever it was would already be in the lineup. It did change my opinion a little bit about what they're going to have to do with the Riley Nash line and whether or not he actually even stays in the lineup as something more than a fourth line center or how they mix up the lines. And that's a conversation we can do in in a few minutes or somewhere else in the show. But there's no good option. There's no good option at replacing John Tavares. But I thought there was a lot of good from that game. One is, I, I hate to say this, but it's just like it doesn't feel like it can get any worse, right? You suffered an emotional blow in that game that is I really hope the lowest of the low that you're ever going to see. You said the second period. There was a bunch of different things from this game that I really love for Toronto. Number one is that dealing with all of that and the minutes distribution and everything that happened in that game you're going to go into the next one knowing that you outplayed them for the majority of the game, that the Leafs' blue line and the Leafs' team defense was effective. Montreal looked dangerous at times. There were moments where it was scary. But the Leafs put the puck over the glass three times. Three times they put the puck over the glass. It was a very strangely officiated game in general. Like about, I don't know about any of the calls were, oh, wow, that was an obvious, clear and obvious call, blah, 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 blah. Austin Matthews rips one off the inside of the post that would have given Toronto, I think at the time, the tie. But Marner had to play 27 minutes. It was just awful. It was just really, really tough. Thornton has... Thornton has two aggressively bad turnovers because he's playing up the lineup, maybe in a role that he's not anticipating, whatever. Here's the positives. One, Leafs still have the best line in the series by a large, large factor, and they dominated. You look at the shot share and the high danger opportunities and expected goals for and just eye test of that hockey game, Marner, Matthews, Hyman were dominant. Those guys are going to score in this series. It's just, it's going to happen. It felt like the Leafs were once again a one-line team until William Nylander arrived and was like, yeah, actually, I can drive a line independently of John Tavares. He scores a goal, but it wasn't just the goal. He had his legs throughout a ton of that game. Nylander was brilliant. Until he flipped the puck over the glass, I was going to say, this is the biggest moment of Nylander's career where he's just taking ownership of this group. Nylander was awesome. And I would say almost most importantly out of that game in terms of Things that I love to see outside of the team defense and the way that the the group rebounded in the second period. Morgan Riley was phenomenal. Phenomenal. 
This is someone who's supposed to be an all-star. This is someone who people believed was going to be a lock for Team Canada heading into this season. He never looked that way. I've been hard on Morgan Riley a lot because that's what happens in this market. High expectations, big role, no more excuses with him having TJ Brody. Brody was awesome. He just makes smart play after smart play. It's hard to understand even sometimes, like outside of a few regular season moments, how he got the like Jake Gardner West reputation at times because he just looks so calm with it. But Riley makes a play in front of the net where he saves a goal with his skate, mm-hmm. just playing desperate hockey. Riley's using his speed through the neutral zone. Riley's playing smart in his own end. And again, from the phone call with my brother, he made the point that, hey, as good as Sandine looked on that power play early, like they couldn't really rely on him late. And if Morgan Riley's on that power play, does he not catch up on the game-winning goal? Does he not make that play with his feet and with his speed? Riley was amazing. Like, I, I was blown away impressed by Morgan Riley. And so if you can get your other star players stepping up, Toronto still has a massive skill advantage. Jack Campbell looked great. Jack Campbell never looked overwhelmed. You can nitpick with whether he should have gone and played that stick or if he had his net at the time. He came up with big saves, huge blocker save, good rebound control, felt like, dude, he didn't feel the puck. He had something like two shots through the first 10 minutes of the second period, and you started to wonder whether he was going to get a little tight. He was great. So there's a few things that they're going to have to absolutely clean up. The power play remains a like unquantifiable disaster. Like, you're terrified of it, and whoever thought that... I saw a stat. Let me pull this up, actually, because this is about... This is as bad as it gets. The, the power play, I think, has six goals and given up six goals since March. Yeah, this is from Alec Brownscombe at Maple Leafs HS. Dating back to that sweep in Edmonton back in early March, the Leafs' power play has scored six goals and conceded six goals on 82 opportunities. That's just... You know, you thought it was bad. Seeing it like that, it's, it's even worse. It's, that is awful. Finding minutes that are going to replace Tavares, awful. And hard to imagine how they're going to do it. But the Leafs were still the better team in that game. Carey Price was great. I anticipate that he's going to stay great. But if the Leafs just play that kind of hockey from the second period on through the rest of the series, they are still going to find a way to win. They are going to buy opportunity for their captain to get back, to get back and be healthy and hopefully join them again during this postseason. So, you know, you can spin it as doom and gloom and I get those feelings because I felt them too of they're cursed and they're doomed and this is awful and why am I a fan of this team? I went through all that. Everybody does. Everybody feels that way if you care about this team. But if you believe, like I do, that this year is different, and I'll happily wear the, the dunce cap if I'm proven wrong. If you believe that this group is different, that the changes in the offseason, that those regular season reps, that those mattered, if you remember that, hey, they won two of those Edmonton games without Austin Matthews. They won two of those Edmonton games without Austin Matthews. That this team can't overcome this and can't beat the Montreal Canadiens, then you're already lost. And... You've already done the thing where you've played out the worst-case scenarios. You've already lived it once. So I, I just believe that this team is going to give a push. I do not believe that this team is over. And I'm not acknowledging the ghosts until I'm forced to be in the room with them. When I talk about the supernatural and I talk about all the bad things that happen, I'm just talking about in that moment, in that game, that 60-minute game. That, I get uh, it. But projecting forward, 
I 100% agree with you. And if you are a betting man, and we'll have Pat Gregoire on later on uh, from CoolBet to talk about this, love this opportunity to live bet the Toronto Maple Leafs because of all the things you said about in that game. So, so 10 minutes of the first period are just a throwaway. You throw that away. The 10 minutes don't count. Six minutes. That's 16 minutes of the game that are just like, what? Like the, the over-the-glass penalties, the three of them, and the 10 minutes of the first period. That's almost a whole period of hockey that are like, okay. And they still almost could have won the game. They could have. Secondarily, I know everybody wanted to see a bunch of 5-1 blowouts in four straight games for this team over a clearly inferior opponent in the first round of the North Division playoffs. It is the National Hockey League. It is the Stanley Cup playoffs. It is this sport that doesn't generally happen. I think the reason that this season is different and there's a multitude of them, but one of them is they're supposed to withstand moments like this. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to withstand moments in games in which they're trailing, in which things aren't going well and bounce back, and they didn't quite yesterday, but they're supposed to suffer indignities, disappointments, critical, crucial, terrifying moments like this Mm -hmm. and bounce back and not be deterred. And still have the confidence of looking to a Joe Thornton who says, hey, I've, I've been on good teams. You guys are as good as any of these teams that have bounced back. Washington Capitals a number of years ago down 2-0 in a series. I've been down in series and won them before. You guys haven't? I know you can. And I know this is a different team. And look at what we did during the regular season. That's what, John, that's what uh, Joe Thornton's here for. It's partly why Jason Spetz is here. Partly why Wayne Simmons is here. These guys are supposed to instill a belief in this team that I think will make it different than years previous. Secondarily, they're also better than previous teams. I think the second part is the more important part. That they're better. And I just, I looked at that game and they were better. And that's all it comes down to. If Jack Campbell plays the way that Jack Campbell played, And if the rest of the team plays the way that they can, they should still win this series. I thought that it was very encouraging, as I said, the way that Morgan Riley played. I think it's encouraging that you're going to get another body back into that game and you're not going to have to... What did Mitch Marner play, like 27 minutes? Um, He was at like the 20-minute mark with nine to go and then they had to... Right, they had to force the the group on the ice. the final four four minutes minutes of the game. Right, so it boosts everybody's numbers up. I just, I, I'm not giving up on the idea that they're the better team and that they're going to win this series because I, I watched it. And uh, I watched it with, like, I'll just put it this way. I'm a, I get as pessimistic about this team as possible. And I, like I mentioned, I go through those ghosts. I go through those emotions just like everybody else. But I weirdly, I don't know. I just, I walked away with feeling more optimism than I have in years past when they've dropped games. And, like, it's an uncomfortable feeling being the front runner when you're a Leafs fan because you don't really... You're not used to being in that position, especially not for a very, very long time. Maybe you were in the early 2000s when I was a child, but it it is an uncomfortable feeling, and I felt that throughout the game, but that they still felt like favorites. I left that game thinking, man, Montreal, they're good. Maybe we overstated a little bit how much of a gap there was going to be between these two teams in a, in a playoff series, especially in a game one. They needed that game more than Toronto, especially given all the circumstances, but... It came down to a bad bounce on the power play 
that ends up in a beautiful finish that is yeah. like a once-in-a-series goal for Montreal <laughs> yeah. that was the deciding factor in a game that really felt like it was going to go Toronto's way eventually. If Nylander plays that way, if, if Matthews plays that way, if Riley plays that way, if Brody plays that way, this team is going to be fine. They are going to regulate and end up, I hope and I believe, to win this series. The guy who it's really tough to circle and get a real gauge of is Marner because they leaned on him so much. He had to play so many minutes, but I do think they need more from him. I, like There were too many moments where he looked indecisive or where he was holding on to it a split second too long, whether deciding whether to shoot or to pass. He gets robbed, obviously, by Carey Price on that one goal. But his over-the-glass penalty, I thought, was the most egregious of them all. There were just too many moments in that game where I didn't feel like he was having a, a heavy enough impact. And that's despite his line playing the way that they did. So I would say that out of all the like star players, out of who didn't show enough in game one, Marner probably is the guy that I'm saying you know you expect a little bit more from moving forward. Now, Now we get to find out. Now we get to find out what this team's made of. This is not the first team in NHL history to lose an important player early on in a playoff series. No. The Tampa Lightning won a yep. cup a season ago without their captain. Mm-hmm. Like, there's direct parallels. He came back for a second when he basically couldn't play and scored a goal. <laughs> but, yeah, the Lightning were without Steven Stamkos for their entire playoff run a season ago and won the Stanley Cup. So what's going to be really interesting moving forward uh, other than how the team bounces back from this and obviously the results of the series is now like we're back to creating lines and juggling lines and coming up with line theories. So yeah, if you have thoughts on this game, again, you can always reach us on Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus at uh, Sportsnet Ben and the text line's open. So text five ninety five ninety, and and we'll, we'll go through some of those messages, but I want to take a break and take some of those messages, but also go over what we think the lineup adjustments are going to be here because, yeah, there's just a lot of different things that I think we could see heading into the next game on, like, blue line and up front. All right. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that. More of your texts, or, I mean, we're going to start with your texts uh, as well. 590-590. Good show continues. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Impossible to talk about anything else today, so you know what? We're not going to talk about anything else. Uh, text line is open, 590. 590, it is a good show. Ben Ennis, J.D. Bunkus, Leafs Hour. Uh, taking your text, talking about the adjustments, lineup-wise, Maple Leafs need to make for Saturday's game, game two, and uh, pretty close to a must-win uh, when you're playing the first two games at home and you drop the first one in the fashion that they did, and now without their captain their second most important player for game two at least second line center and there's not a lot of good options there really isn't there's a, there's a lot of depth and the Maple Leafs acquired some guys that play up the middle but don't do what John Tavares does so I'm actually going to start with this one I wonder if Sheldon Keefe changes up the third pairing on the blue line as well going into the next game uh, that might sound overreactionary, and I think you definitely have to keep two things in mind. One is that you used a lot of practice time with Rasmus Sandin on your power play, and I'm not sure you want to move off of that. But there's no way this team's going with 70. They need to have an added forward. They can't play shorthanded down a man without John Tavares. It's just a complete non-starter. 
but Sandine was sheltered in that game. They really did lean on the top four, and Bogosian looked very slow, and he did not look... I couldn't... Again, I... There's one of those things where you're trying to recalibrate things and recalibrate expectations and whatever, and I couldn't tell if Bogosian was slower because he hasn't been skating and playing in a while or if that was just Zach Bogosian because it reminded me of early in the year where he was getting a couple of clutching penalties, and I, and I thought, huh, maybe this guy uh, needs some time to get back up to speed, and the Leafs don't really have, they can't really afford that. That said, I don't think Bogosian's going to come out, but I do wonder if there's going to be a decision and the decision is going to be made between can you rely on Travis Dermott a little bit more than Rasmus Sandin right now in that moment? I don't know. But I, I do think that it's going to be something they considered based on the deployment of Sandin. Uh, he had a really bad turnover in that game, but it was after a long shift. Either way, it, it didn't seem like they trusted him a lot or it was just a byproduct of being down in a game and whatever. But I, I thought there was at least enough in game one for them to circle it and say, hey, this is really interesting. Or not really interesting, but like this is something that we're going to put on the table and have a discussion on. Yeah, it's really interesting, some of the in-game adjustments, because Mm -hmm. I I really did think the first power play, I was like, oh my goodness, they've fixed it. They've done it. And Sandine made a couple of plays at the blue line to to Mm -hmm. keep the puck in and keep the rush going and the cycle going. Strongest case to keep them is those reps on the power play. They looked awesome, and they didn't score on the first couple because it wasn't just the first it was the second one too after that it kind of did come unglued and then of course yeah he's him and Joe Thornton are the reasons why the the game winning goal is scored but late in that game Leafs have a power play and go six on four and remember this is also a guy in Rasmus Sandin who got reps with six attackers like he Mm -hmm. was on the ice in practice six on five they had a chance to tie the game Six on four, and he's not there. It's Morgan Riley. By the way, we forgot to talk about one thing that was big and that a lot of people did, so we'll we'll weigh in on the Felino fight later. Um, I I have a lot of thoughts on it, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm forgetting it from seeing some of the text. But first, just the lineup machinations. I think the first question you have to ask yourself if you're Sheldon Keefe is – whether or not you're going to keep Matthews, Marner, and Hyman together. Like, whether that's a luxury that you get to keep um, knowing that you have a team that's now constructed completely differently. Yeah, and... Like, can Hyman drive his own line was already a focal point, but if you thought, hey, we have two lines where they can push and they can score, are you going... Like, Keefe in the past... Like, if, if Columbus is an indicator, if we're still going off of Columbus, Sheldon, Keefe, you would assume that he's going to keep Hyman, Matthews, and Marner together because he likes having the one dominant line, and if there's a reason to look at that game and, again, feel biggest reasons of optimism, it's that line. So there's a case against tinkering with it, but there's also a case for saying, well, what we're going to do is drop Zach Hyman down the lineup and try and create a little bit more goal scoring because it it did feel a very, very reminiscent to a year ago where it was, well, if that one line's not on the ice, who is going to score? Mm-hmm. The, like, yeah. I, I almost wonder if there's a case to take Riley Nash like straight up out of the lineup and yeah. have Engvall in his spot and then bring Galchenyuk in and simply say, well, you know, that's not the way that we can be built to win now. And Riley Nash, thanks for coming out, but... um. 
you can't have a just complete zero impact player offensively in a series where you lose Tavares down the middle. Like, I don't know if that stays the same. I'd almost rather have Risky Pierre, who scored a bunch of goals for them down the stretch. I mean, every decision and every conversation about every decision, the lineup mm-hmm. for myself going down the stretch was, hey, if there's, if it's as simple as what do you prefer, offense or defense? Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you take the defense all the time. This team has enough scoring with those first two lines. And even if the bottom six you get next to nothing from, like a goal or two in the entire series, that top six is so dominant that you should be fine. But you're right. Like, removing that one player, again, one of the hottest, least goal scorers in the second half of the season in John Tavares, makes you recalibrate. Because Philip Deneau does a pretty good job. And I know that top line was was buzzing and could have scored and hit a post and Nylander hits a crossbar. Mm-hmm. But you need more than just that one line going offensively. I think it, at this point it's almost a given that Galchenyuk gets in the way he looked offensively. I, I don't know what you do with, with Hyman because you're right. There, there were times where he was, he was the, the line driver and if ever there was a spot where you could plug and play somebody and not lose anything off that top line, it would mm-hmm. be yeah, Matthews and Marner. So, Kerfoot, they played at second line center, and there's a case to be made where it's like, okay, I, I think that you're keeping all your potential centers in the lineup, and you're still doing the thing where you're searching for it. And, and that sucks to say, but I, I believe that you keep Felino and Nylander together, and you kind of have a bit of a rotating door that maybe starts with Kerfoot, uh, but could end up being shifts with Thornton, could end up being shifts with Spezza. If I'm Sheldon Keefe, this is what I consider. Galchenyuk, Matthews, Marner, Felino slash Kerfoot slash Spezza with Nylander, Mikheyev, Engvall, Hyman, Thornton, Kerfoot slash Spezza, Simmons. So you think that that's a more offensive-looking third line? Yeah. I think that that third line, Engvall can still kill penalties. Like, I've taken Riley Nash out of the lineup. Um, That's probably unfair, maybe even unlikely to happen. And uh, I I don't know, man. I I don't know if that's just Riley Nash's game or whatever, but it looked like on him finishing his checks that he just basically wanted to touch somebody and not actually hit somebody. And, yeah, he just doesn't – I don't think that you can have a punt line. I just – I don't think you can. And I don't believe that if you put Riley Nash in the middle of Hyman and Mikheyev, I, I don't know what that looks like. I know what, you know, the, the meh line looks like. And the meh line produced at times. And I, and I kind of feel like that gives you the best of both worlds where you're not going to play your third line as much, but you can start to do the Sheldon Keefe thing of Galchenyuk gets some shifts – but then every once in a while, you're bumping Hyman up to that top line, depending on what the game script is, and, and moving the pieces around. Like, that that guy's not afraid to tinker. So if you started Galchenyuk, Matthews, Marner, Felino, Spezza, or Kerfoot, Nylander, Mikheyev, Engvall, Hyman, and then the vintage line or the urgency line or whatever you want to call it is the final grouping, like, it, it that doesn't look so bad to me. But Riley Nash in there, I, I really do believe was a was more of a thing when you could afford to have a line that didn't score and just shut the other group down. The counter-argument would be that the Leafs created more than enough chances to score more than one goal, yep. even without John Tavares. In that second period, they were a-buzzing, 
and they scored mm -hmm. the goal, and they could have had multiple. And Carey Price comes up with a big save on the two-on-one on on Mitch Marner, and the power play looked abominable. I guess you can't count on that getting better because, like you said, mm -hmm. it's been so bad for so long. But that they could have, like, you replay even that game back with all the horrible things that happened and the mitigating circumstances that they could have easily won it. And then even after the Byron goal, which is, a, like, one of the goals of the year, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Considering the circumstances and, and where he was on the ice and basically on his stomach flipping it over Jack Campbell. That even then, you had a six-on-four with an opportunity to tie the game at the end that offense might still not be your problem. Here's what I, I feel very confident saying. Austin Matthews is going to score on Saturday. Like, Austin Matthews is going to score. It's going to happen. He's just too good, and he's been too Austin Matthews-y not to score. How many goals do you need? Like, this this Habs team got two two goals off the rush, right? One where... One of their speediest players went through the third pairing and passed a guy who might not be in the lineup for game two. And then one, again, in a fluky turnover at the blue line in a shorthanded opportunity. And granted, they're a great shorthanded team. I think have most shorthanded goals in the NHL this season. But they didn't create it very much five on five on their own mm. opportunities. Why do you need to go away from that just because you scored one goal in the hockey game? And I get it. You're losing a lot of goal scoring from John Tavares. I don't. I don't know if necessarily that's the, the, the decision you need to make right away is go entirely against your game plan, which I said coming into this postseason was lean into defense, let your skill players just overwhelm them when they get the opportunity. I think you are still leaning into defense. This is still a good team defensively, and I still trust the Mikheyev-Engvall-Hyman line. Like, I like all three of those guys. Again, I'm not, even, I'm not pounding the table for this. I know that that's what you're supposed to do in talk shows and – be as over the top about it as possible but I, I just think that if I'm looking at reasons why it felt like the one goal was very insurmountable Carey Price is number one and number two was it was all about one line and I still think that a Galchenyuk Matthews Marner line is going to be able to produce is going to be able to score Hyman was awesome in that game to the point where like that one cross check not thank oh goodness he goodness. had to eat it no, but just the, at least he showed he's human because I sometimes wonder if that guy can feel pain at all given the way that he plays and the way that he goes into the corners just fearlessly <laughs> against the number of players, whatever, and gets back up. But And thank goodness it, there was a timeout immediately afterwards. I was like, how yeah. is this guy going to keep playing? I, I just I don't hate the idea of trying to get more offense in here. I just don't. I don't hate the idea of saying that you're still going to overwhelm them with skill and you have a little bit more offense and you know that you're not going to be able to get as big of a punch from your second group. And again, Engvall kills penalties. Engvall was hot at the end of the year. Keith doesn't love him. I think that was pretty well established throughout the season, but I don't hate the idea of him getting in the roster and having essentially a double switch. Okay, so the Felino stuff, because people, there's a lot of tweets about the Felino thing. I'm just going to say this. If that upset you in some way, if you didn't feel like, or whatever the code and blah, 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 I don't, fine. It, it just is. I'm not going to tell you how to feel. For me, that is exactly what Felino, or sorry, what Perry said at the end of the game, which is you got to get out of the way. And what Felino said, which is our captain's laying on the ice. It's as simple as that. You brought in Nick Felino because you know that you wanted to have a guy stick up for players on this team. There was a scrum very, very early in that game where. I think it was Nylander who like was got stuck in a corner and guys were trying to rough him up a bit. And guess who flies in there? Nick Felino. Corey Perry 
I do believe did that accidentally. I know Corey Perry was shook and probably didn't love, didn't love, was probably rattled that Tavares, that that happened to him and that he was dealing with the emotions of it too. Nick Foligno saying, I don't care, intentional or not, you're not just skating away from that, is part of the Leafs' new identity of, hey, it doesn't matter. You're going to fight somebody. And I, I really do believe that there's going to be a moment this series as long as you can avoid an instigator where Wayne Simmons is going to go after Sherratt too. That there's not going to be a free pass for Sherratt who is running around like a goof in that game and taking free shots at guys. And yeah, I, like that's his job. He's trying to be an agitator, whatever. But at some point, um, you got to figure that he's going to pay for sticking out that knee, that they're going to have seen that, and that he's going to pay for going after Matthews and Marner the way that he has so far this series. So... Like, I don't know what to tell you. If it upsets you, it upsets you. I'm not going to say anything that's going to change your mind. But to me, that's just a that's just part of the game. Um, and I don't hate to see it. And I actually love that Felino's the kind of guy who would step out there on the ice and just simply say, I do not care. I do not care. They were like, voice of reason and Weber's coming up and guys are trying to talk. Don't care. Like, let him fly, kid. And I love that he didn't even want to let up. It was great. From my vantage yeah. point, it was great. Yeah, uh, I was at that moment still shook, and, like, I didn't mm – -hmm. I was kind of confused. My brain was kind of melted, so I was, like – I had to recalibrate what was happening in the moment. And, in fact, I thought it was an attempt in the, in the moment because the stoppage was so prolonged and everyone's emotions were so messed up and everyone's intensity mm -hmm. was probably – gone from that moment. I was like, alright, here's two guys who were like, hey, remember we're playing an intense hockey game that's like really important and like let's get everybody's juices flowing again and let's 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 re-energize. Like again, the, the, the beginning of the bubble last year where there's no fans and they get a fight going where you're kind of reminded of, of how this is supposed to feel. I don't discount that as still a possibility as like part of the factor there, but yeah, it, it's a hockey fight. Again, and it, this is not two guys who are like don't know how to fight or no but i get that it was uncomfortable no but it was I, well, but it I, did fe feel... I felt uncomfortable yeah but it was uncomfortable I'm... and so i like i said i understand the feeling from some people who thought that it was unnecessary or that it was um in some way offensive like, i can see how you can draw a line there in ways that other fights you know you don't like it was it was an uncomfortable moment but you're right like that was going to happen that was going to happen eventually, and they got it out of the way, and it created a little bit more of a buffer in the game from gameplay to uh, getting guys back into it. And, and I just thought, hey, I, I'm definitely not going to fault Felino for that. Like, the guy feels in the moment like he saw his captain laying on the ice. That whole team saw their captain laying on the ice. They were never going to let the other team in a playoff series just walk away from that and say, no, we're not going to do something about it. Like, I'm sorry. It was just, it was going to happen. If it felt uncomfortable for you, I'm sorry. It felt uncomfortable for me too. But I, I definitely wasn't thinking like, wow, this makes me sick and I, I can't believe Felino would it, do that or I can't believe anybody would do that. It's like I took a lot of guts for Felino to do that. Well, and in the moment, again, my confusion because I – I'd seen the replay. At a certain point, I stopped looking back at the replay, mm -hmm. but my initial reaction was that that had to have been accidental. But when the fight happens, and then you see Sheldon Keefe yelling afterwards, I was like, I had to recalibrate. Then I did. I was like, do I need to go back and, and revisit this hit? Was there something that I missed? Mm -hmm. and, and no, there wasn't. But on the ice, in that moment, do all the players have access to every replay? Is there a 
percentage chance that they believe one of the dirtiest players in the last 15 years in the NHL did something egregiously dirty to their captain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that possibility existed. And if it happened, he'd, he'd better pay for his actions. Turns out, no, absolutely, completely accidental. Corey Perry tried to plead his case, but then was like, you know what? It's a hockey fight. I'll get in a hockey fight here in a hockey mm-hmm. game, in a playoff game. I also do not need to wring my hands of it. Like, I, I don't, we're just talking about a hockey fight. I, I know the circumstances were weird. I felt weird in the moment and confused, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. I was confused. So we brought this up on yesterday's show, but there's a text in there that I like, which is with high expectations and years of coming up short, the Raptors lost game one of the first round versus Orlando and they won the chip. There's symmetry, Lawrence and Brampton. And yeah, Lawrence, we said this yesterday of like, if the Leafs lose game one, don't forget that those same things felt with the Raptors. And guess what? Same thing with Raptors fans. Did you not feel like, here we go again, another yep. first round another where they curse. lose a game and they do a thing and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, there's yeah, nothing worse than having the overreaction from game one and saying that the series is over. Like, I, I saw a lot of that. I see some of that today. I see some of the um, giving up on the Leafs stuff. I see a lot of Haps fans like already basically celebrating the series because they won and the expectation was that Toronto would uh, destroy them. But either way, I, I just... I... Yes, every game matters. Yes, I thought Montreal's only path to victory was by winning game one in the series. Carey Price looked incredible. There's a lot of reason to believe in the Montreal Canadiens. But if you look at that game as a whole... I still believe there's more reasons to believe in the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's just where I'm at with it. Let's take a yeah, break and let's talk to Christopher Stieg. Yeah, there's a big sample of the Toronto Maple Leafs being good at hockey. Um, all right. Yes. Christopher Stieg next, former NHL forward and uh, current contributor to Sportsnet's NHL coverage, joins us next. It's a good show. Ben Annis, J.D. Bunkus, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. You can catch our next guest on Instagram at Delicious, where he uses the sandwich to tell us straight his hockey thoughts. What? I'm not even... I'm, I'm just dead serious. I love Versteeg's Instagram during games. It's great. It's a lot of crying about how Connor McDavid doesn't have whatever he needs all the time, for sure. There's no doubt about that. Guy loves McDavid. Huge Oilers fan. There's just no doubt about it, but... The analysis is usually pretty sharp, and I do enjoy it. And I do enjoy the sand wedge component. Like, I think it's, I, a, it's an all-good video. When, when I used to do TV in the well, well before time, I used to like to hold a pen. Like, that's an important thing. Like, to have something mm-hmm. in your hand is yeah. very important, to do something yeah. with your hand. Honestly, the holding of the sandwich, I, I, I need to hold a sand. I need to go down to my golf bag and pick one up because it's such a power move. It adds mm-hmm. so much gravitas to whatever you're doing. Uh, the the great Christopher Stieg joins us on the line right now. So congratulations on your Instagram success. Oh, thank you. And uh, Oilers fan, where did this come from? Oh, did buddy, you back in the history books of when my dad forced me to be an Oilers fan, or oh, I just watch, uh, I buddy. I, here's the thing: hey, I'm a, I'm a sports fan, so it's like I can see other sports fans. I just I can recognize it no matter what you try to do. You try to hide it, I'll see it. It's like Blade, he can see other vampires. It's like that's me with other sports fans. I watch the way that you break down Oilers games and how upset you are over all the McDavid stuff and it's because there's a part of you that regardless of playing in the show and all the teams you played for and all the connections you've made and blah blah blah, there's still a part of you that loves the Oilers. It's just it's there and you can deny it all you want. I know it. It's just that's a fact. 
little bit of nostalgia when I watched them. Yeah, That's it takes right. me back to the Todd yeah. Marchand Thank you. Dallas and screaming as a child in a room. Yeah. You know? But then you see what happens to Connor the other night. And, yep. Yeah. Anyways, see, let's not go there. Your reactions to it are this why it's like there. I watched that video. I was like, this guy loves the Oilers. Um, okay, so I also watched as you broke down the Tavares injury. And, yeah, I, it's, it's funny, man. You were one of the only guys that thought the same thing I did, which is why wasn't anyone talking about Sherratt? Well, I watched it again today just to make sure I wasn't offside on thinking that was the reason for the entire incident. Okay, everyone's like, ah, oh, it's, it's, it's an accidental injury. Well, yeah, it's accidental after a reckless way to go into a hit. Sherratt, first off, leans with his knee. Tavares gets out of the way. He clips, and I mean nicks his shoulder. He goes knee to thigh. If anything, it's a clipping or a tripping at minimum or a kneeing. I'm not saying that what Sherratt did was a, a, a five-minute, four-minute, or a suspension. I'm saying the reason this whole thing happened is because Sherratt, he goes into a lot of situations recklessly that, I don't know, he gets a lot of penalties, but he goes into a lot of reckless situations, and that was just another one. He led with his knee. Those hitters, man, I've played against those hitters. They've tore a lot of knees. They've wrecked a lot of quads. It's a dangerous way to hit. He went in recklessly, and that's the causation for the entirety of the events. Now, I watched TV last night, and there's everyone on TV is not talking about it. I'm like, how has not one person even said that there's a two-minute penalty on the play that led to the incident that John Tavares then got hit in the head? That's where I was just like, what is going on? Am I, am I the only one thinking like, like this? Uh, and, and then at, at the end of the whole thing, there wasn't even a two-minute penalty. So that's where I was like, I was baffled. But I made sure I watched it again. Because again, in the old Instagram DMs, I get all my, you know, you get all your buddies and everyone ripping you whether they like it or disagree. And so you start to banter back and forth whether you agree with it or not. But I made sure I looked at it numerous times. If you're going into a situation recklessly, Sherratt did, call that penalty. That penalty doesn't, or that incident doesn't happen if he doesn't do it, or at least give him something for the incident of causation. Now, Perry, I don't, he, he did not go into that intent to hurt John. There's, you go into these situations, it's going so fast. Now, Perry, he's the only one who truly knows at that moment what he could have done. I truly believe he tried to get out of the way. Now, it's like if you're that close, you're like, oh, this is going to happen. Whatever happens, I'm going to try, but it's going to happen. That doesn't mean he didn't try to get out of the way. I don't know. Again, only Corey knows. I would not at all lay the blame on Corey Perry. So that's where when they went after, when they went after um, Corey to fight, I was kind of angry that the Leafs weren't going after Sherratt. Like, like he caused the entire incident. So I was like, why are they going after Perry, too? Like, if I was on the bench, I, their whole medical... And they were obviously very in shock, as I was, too. So maybe they didn't even understand what was going on because it was, it was hor- horrible what we watched. And, again, just praying he's okay. But I would have been screaming on the bench, someone jump Sherrod. Someone fight Sherrod. Don't be fighting Corey Perry. Yeah. Um, we said today that... We're, it, however people felt about the Corey Perry Felino fight, like I'm certainly not going to tell anybody how to feel. I didn't mind it just from the standpoint of he's on the ice, they put him out there, and the explanation that everybody gave at the end of the game, which was like, you were going to settle this eventually, and this is a team that in the past has been criticized for not sticking up for their guys and letting moments like that pass without any retribution, and so you go out and get a Nick Felino, you put him on the ice in that situation. Like I know everybody's like blaming Felino. It's like Keith knew what he was doing, the team knew what they were doing, and the, 
like Dubas knew what he was doing when he was acquiring a guy like Nick Foligno for situations like that. So I, I really don't yeah. put that much blame on either guy, but I agree with you that I, I did think that it was Sherratt was someone that was going to face some level of consequence from the team eventually, but they fell behind in the game and uh, it just shifted. So yeah, I wasn't overly upset with it, even though it did feel super uncomfortable. And, and I did wonder when I was watching Sheldon Keefe yell at the officials, if that's what he was yelling about was the Sherratney and that, like wondering why yeah. that wasn't penalized. A hundred percent. And back to the Felino thing quickly. I, I had no problem with what he did. Like I had no yeah. problem with fighting. I just wish it was that they would have focused their energy on the right guy of the incident. Obviously, things, emotions are going, and you, you're trying to make logical sense in situations, and it's hard to do. I'm not saying I would have. I mean, that's what I think I would have done. I don't know. Again, I, I hadn't been in that situation in a long time. So, um, But, yeah, the Felino, I, I have no problem with that at all. Oh, no. you know, Ben, I know I want you to say one last thing too, Ben, but it's like for anybody that's judging Felino or judging uh, that fight or getting upset with it, again, not telling you how to feel, but all I would say is just put yourself in the shoes of those players and in that moment and how wild and how complicated and how emotional it was and then to have that fight and then to put it out there like you believe that this is some kind of a disgusting or horrifying act, like trying to pass judgment on those guys in that moment, I kind of think is, is a bit yeah. of a bad look. That's all. That's well, all I'm going to say. And again, like no, nobody from either side is upset, right? No, no, 100% about that too. Like that, It reminded me of a situation when I was in the minors, uh, just a quick story. Jordan Hendry was coming around the net and Nicholas Jalmerson's stick got caught. And by the time Jordan Hendry got to the other side of the net, it got caught between a player and the net and he whipped his stick and he full-on tomahawk chopped um, Jordan Hendry in the head and he was lights out. Uh, and he was convulsing on the ground, and I was behind. He just missed me, actually. And I thought what happened was is he got slashed by the Texas – or it wasn't Texas Stars. I believe it was Houston or someone at that time. So I started trying to fight the kid because I thought he slashed. But that just shows the situation happened so fast. Jordan Hendry was on the ground. Um, he was bleeding. It was a very scary situation. But I was going crazy thinking another guy did it because, again, things happen so fast you don't know. And I was attacking this other player. So at the end, I, I realized my own team and accidentally hit him. So that's a little a situation for myself where it was a real, real big moment in my life where uh, I, I thought I made the right decision. I didn't. But then you come back to realization about 30 seconds later and see your teammate laying there. It is a, a horrible, horrible feeling. It's a helpless feeling. So just to know what those guys went through to an extent is it, it's very, very hard. Yeah, those are your brothers out there, and you see one go down, like you're obviously going to want to defend them. You don't want to take stock of exactly what's happening in that moment, and you don't even have time to. That was uh, about as bizarre uh, 10 minutes of hockey after that in that first period, and, and really the whole game was impacted by it. Like, how is your evaluation of what happened in that 60-minute hockey game? Like, is Are you just saying, hey, man, that was such a bizarre circumstance, and it wasn't just the first period that was impacted. It was the whole game, so it's hard to really evaluate too much. Yeah, I, that, that's exactly what it was. I, I felt like a pit in my stomach the rest of the game. I'm sure like most did, and, and I'm sure the players did as well, especially with, you know, playoffs. You get all jacked up, that happens. So it just the, the power play for me, too, is it's all out of sorts, and that could come from, again, being just out of sorts yourself and from what happened through the incident of the game. It was real strange. I know the Leafs had some shots. They had some good looks, but they didn't sustain any really good ozone. Um, the power play again bothers me. It's real stagnant. They try to force a lot up top, and they and the middle power play guy Sandine generally 
He's always too much in the middle of the ice at the wrong time or at the side of the ice at the wrong time, meaning there's a lot of plays, say if you're watching Tampa Bay use, it'll be Stamkos will pass to Hedman. Hedman will be on basically in dot line, and it's a long pass to Kucherov all the way across the ice. That spreads the box out. And so that's where I'm just going with the Leafs comparative power play to Tampa Bay is Hedman uses that top really well to spread the box to give their players time and space where I feel like Sandine constantly crowds and also Morgan does too. They crowd their players on the side. It makes it too um, slow. They don't move well enough. And and again, they don't attack from low enough. So I feel like their power play stinks and, and a lot of that is because of the top guy on the Leafs being the issue. And then also when they get it, he's not ready to shoot either. He doesn't shoot enough. So the, the power play for me is, is a big issue, uh, and I, I worry about it. But again, last night is almost like you're in shock. You're going through the motions because of what happened to your good friend. And, and I mean, I, I don't want to be hypercritical of the rest of it. It's just more the, they need to figure out the power play. Yeah. No, I would say like the obvious number one negative is what happened to Tavares, but number two is the power play that the anxieties of it creep up to the point. Like I, I read a stat that was posted yesterday that since the Edmonton series, they've only scored six power play goals and they've given up six in like over 80 opportunities. Like that's how bad it is. That's how big a funk it is. And I wonder, so you obviously stated that the, the blue line is a problem or a part of the problem with the power play. Um I wonder just how much of it is mental now and how it might be dragging on those guys when they get those opportunities and they can't convert them. And, yeah, how that starts to build over the course of a game when, you know, now you're 0 for 3. You give up a shorthanded goal. It's cost you the game. Now you move into the next one. You kind of try to go in with a refresh mentality, but how quickly it starts to weigh upon you once you go 0 for 1 or 0 for 2. Yeah, it compounds. You know what compounds is if you lose the face-off. Okay, you lose a face-off, it goes down the ice, you're like, holy crap. You know, there's a good start to the power play. And then if all of a sudden you don't get in on an entry, then it's like, oh, man. Then you get in and finally you get a shot, there's no puck retrieval, and it's back down the ice, right? These things compound, and it's really hard to get back on track. Like, I don't know why Nylander was on the side at the end of the game uh, where basically Matthews is supposed to be. You need a one-time threat on that side because Mitch isn't a threat. I know Willie had an okay opportunity sifting it through, but that almost just tells me why Why are they not in their positions at that point? Are they not confident enough to be there, or is it just Willie was there and they were reading off who was there and the situation at hand? But for myself, again, it's it's a compounding issue that goes throughout the team. Each and every power play, every little point, every little pass that gets tipped, you start to think about it more and more, and I'm sure it's messing with them quite off, or quite a bit right now. But they need to put the right personnel on too, and for me, that's a bit of it. That's a big issue. So let's talk about that. You mentioned Sandine with the spacing, uh, not to your liking, but you also mentioned that Morgan Riley does a lot of the the same things. Also, they spent like the 400 days between the end of the regular season and the postseason working on this thing. Obviously, it's a noted point of emphasis, and Sandine was on the top unit throughout all of those practices. Does it start there when you talk about personnel? Yeah, you guys might think I'm crazy. I mean, I played with the guy. He doesn't have the best shot, but I played with him in Calgary, and there's not many who can walk a blue line and knows how to make plays up there better than TJ Brody. Um, I've been wondering why they haven't tried him there. Uh, I understand why you have Morgan there. I understand why you want to try Sandine there. 
But for Brody, he's such a great puck distributor, especially on his forehand. And that forehand pass over that Morgan can't do the same forehand type of pass that Brody can, where Brody does it a lot like Hedman. He can look at the net and he can really open up that lane to Matthews. I feel anyways, I, I really feel that that's a critical pass that he knows how to make. He knows how to walk the blue line. He knows where on the blue line he needs to make the passes from comparative, I believe, to the others. So I, I've always wanted to see him just put in the situation. Give him, give him a game. I know right now if you're in the playoffs and it's do or die, but maybe give him, give him the second unit or at least try him on the first if something's not going right early on. Not only that, TJ's much better at skating the puck up the ice uh, on the power play for the breakout than the other two are. I'm not saying he doesn't have the same shot and maybe uh, the same offense when it comes to like the first pass ability, but just the distribution, his skating would, would be something I would like to see up top. And then get someone in the middle who's a shooter. I love Jumbo, but I'd rather have Jumbo in front of the net. You know, if if you're going to use him on the power play on the top unit, but you want to use Hyman, I would like someone in the middle who's a shooter. Felino can really rip the puck. Get someone in there who's going to want to shoot the puck because that guy needs to be unselfish, and Jumbo is too. But I think you need someone in there that's got a good release and can get the puck to the net. Well, this was the other part of the game that was so difficult to judge, right, was Keith and the way that he deployed the players throughout the rest of the game. Like, I, it's funny that you bring up the Brody thing because it's something that's, like, never mentioned, and yet it is something where, uh, yeah, he can't... Because of the situation he came to, which is playing next to Morgan Riley and being more defensively responsible, it's almost like every person on the planet uh, discounted that he has an offensive side to his game. You know, like, everyone looked at him like, because he's playing with Morgan Riley, it's just, hey, TJ Brody, you know him, he's a shutdown defenseman. That's who he is. That's what the role is. He's here. He's supposed to be responsible. He's supposed to be the conscience, blah, 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 blah. So I, I don't hate that idea. I just wonder when you put in so many reps the way that you do it, whether or not um, you can be a little bit more stubborn to try something new or whether it feels more panicky, like how that resonates with the rest of the team when you start doing things like all of a sudden the guy who's never played power play for you all year ends up on that unit. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Repetition is a huge thing. It's about how comfortable TJ can be. TJ's hockey sense is through the roof, so I wouldn't... He was amazing in that first period before the injury. Like, he's just one yeah. of those guys where he goes back and, like, you feel the confidence of a player where... And we said there was this weird thing where he was like Jake Gardner-West or there were people that talked about him in that regard. Like, he would make these boneheaded plays, and we saw a few in the regular season, but, like, how many plays he made in that game that were just understated moments, it was one of the reasons I feel good about this team moving forward. Yeah, and, and nothing against Jake. Like, Jake has been known a little bit more of a power play guy, but TJ's a, like a much wet, better, well-rounded player. And I was in Calgary forever, and they would complain about the odd bonehead play you make. But guess what? That's what the risk you're going to take when you get a guy who has to move the puck to his forwards, who gets it to them with space. He can make plays on his back and his forehand, his hockey IQ, his skating ability, everything. It was everything. And when we were in Calgary, he was on our top unit, and we made the power play. Or we made the – we had over when, – when we got our power play finalized in November to the end of the season, we were 23% power play. You know, and that was just mainly because TJ, even if even that situation last night with Sandine, TJ would have caught Byron, no problem. You know what I mean? Those are situations that would happen all the time for us. I'd be like, oh boy, I can't get back. And then all of a sudden, TJ would just fly back, get the puck, and it'd be like, he'd break it up. 
So not only you're not worrying about the defense with him on the power play, you still have the offense. So again, I, I doubt they're going to try it. I, they are probably never listening to what I'm saying, obviously. But if they want to do and they want to pay me, bring me in. I'll, I'll help you guys out for a little bit. Too bad you already gave um, the milk away for free, buddy. Like yeah, you just did it. Yeah. <laughs> but but I I, I love I I didn't understand why Calgary was adamant about that. The media and I even told the media too when I come on their show. I'm like, I think you guys are crazy for wanting this guy out of town. Um, and especially with Giordano, they're the perfect mesh. Dude, that this is what happens though, right? Is that a narrative gets built by a fan base and it becomes almost over impossible to overcome. You saw it here with Gardner and you see it here now with Freddie Anderson, where you would think that Freddie Anderson is one of the worst goaltenders who ever, like you'd think that it was, you know, bad years of Jonathan Bernier the, compared to like what he's done in this market and the way that he gets talked about. So like every, I think just like fan bases need to pick spots and it's a selective memory thing and it happens and it gets over extrapolated. It's just, it's just a byproduct of, you know, being a hockey fan, being a sports fan. So the question now is what do you do? Because man, Thornton has two bad turnovers in that game. Like, we can quibble with the second one in terms of whether or not he could have gotten in deep or not or whether he had position. But the first one's just like, you know, he throws a muffin up the middle. He's trying to throw a saucer pass, and it goes the other way and gets put in the back of the net. And I don't know if you're wanting to rely on him playing center after he hasn't played center all year. Like, that seemed like an odd decision. Um, I can't imagine Engvall goes from out of the lineup up to the second unit. I don't really love Kerfoot there. They like him as a winger more, to, so to switch him to center. Obviously, Riley Nash isn't going to play. Like, what, what do you do with the you're, lines, man? Like, where does it start? You're leading me right into my answer. You basically answered my, my question, or your question for me. I'm going to put my hat back on. I did it last year. I'm going to do it again. Oh, yeah. Free Jason Spezza. I know. Yeah, this is Free Jason Spezza. Mm-hmm. Why... Does he have to play? He played 12 minutes last night when you lost Tavares. What, wow. You're telling me he can't play 14 minutes? You're telling me he can't play 15 minutes? And then you can also have a little bit of that minute taken on by Engvall if Jason's not, you know, you want to get your second line out there for a couple of quick shifts and you're like, well, Jason can't go. Well, then put Pierre there and then let him get back into it. It's just, what is, am I going crazy thinking that like, why can't he be on the ice? Like, they must know it? something. They yeah. like I they they obviously have something internally that they deeply believe in because you're right. I thought the same thing where I go, well now Spezza is going to get bumped up and they're going to have to take a look at Spezza. He took two penalties in that game and like one of them especially was really not great. Um like you're behind your opponent's net, but yeah, it's a if loose just, whistle yesterday, though. Yeah, but even still, that was a bad one. And I, I, I don't know. It's tough to reward guys after a game like that. But you're right. The season that he put together, like the idea that you would ever go to Joe Thornton in that spot over Spezza based on what we saw from those two players this season, or even Kerfoot, is nuts. So I just, I'm giving their staff essentially the benefit of the doubt that they feel as though like if he exceeds 13 minutes a game or something he that wears he, that like, vest you know the beeping vest that's attached yeah. to a computer and they're yeah. like oh, oh yeah we know the exact minute to the second that Jason yeah. Spezza can go and if he goes over that he explodes yeah the eye in the sky is like beaming it down that that Jason Spezza he's at 12 <laughs> minutes please lock him down now we have a whole period <laughs> left but um <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, you can bring Galchenyuk in. You can put him on the wing. You can bring Engvall in if you want to get more of a center guy because he can spot go at center. You can do these things. 
But you have a guy who plays offense. You can bump him up a couple more minutes to 14 minutes. You can manage it through putting players in those positions. Maybe Engvall takes the D zone draws if you're worried about Jason trying to get the puck up the ice, focus Jason's minutes with the top line more in the O zone. It's just common sense and management. Again, maybe they have things they know that we don't know, but I've been, I've been, I'm, I might even put on a free Spetsa shirt tomorrow. I might, if anyone knows where I can get one, either send it to me or let me know. You, but you I, I just, it in Sharpie? yeah, I'll, I'll just put shirt. it on Sharpie. Yeah, I'll yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, you do that. Uh, just like the guys in the NFL when they score touchdowns and they rip off the shirt and they got the the t-shirt underneath. You got to have that one, basically, especially if yeah. he scores a goal. That'll make the Instagram pop. Again, follow him at Stegalicious on Instagram. The stories are very good during the game. So I, I guess one of the discussions Ben and I have had today, and, and maybe we'll end on this, is, okay, so we already agree. Maybe all of us, I think, actually agree that I would give Spets a first turn at second-line center. Um, you would. I think Ennis would. A lot of people would be clamoring for it. But there still has to be a decision about, like, who comes in and who comes out. Do you look at the way Riley Nash played yesterday and say you keep that together, you try and keep a shutdown line when you have less scoring in your lineup with Tavares, when you don't have as much dependability when it comes to winning draws and doing these things. Because, like, I I didn't really know what to make of Nash's game other than, like, apparently he does a lot of things quietly and he's defensive forward, but, like, he wasn't hitting anybody. He was just kind of tapping them. And uh, I don't know. It just sort of felt like... against him. It, it sort of felt like to me this is a double switch scenario where you're inserting Galchenyuk and you're trying and you have to put Galchenyuk in the top six, which is why maybe you bump Hyman down to the third line and have a third line that he tries to drive. But to me, I, I just thought there was like kind of a case where maybe you take Nash out and you put in an Engvall, like, and you just say like this is the third line now. They need a little bit more scoring, and Engvall can still kill penalties. Yeah, no, no, you got to leave Nash in. Um, okay. He's guy again. Face-offs is his first game. Uh, real smart player. You're not going to get a physically dominant game by him. He's basically a distributor. He's kind of like a Dave Bolin, just he's not as ratty. Does that kind of make sense? Well, he's, I thought you were friends with Dave Bolin, and now he's going to be choked. <laughs> like that's oh, be... I mean, Dave, Dave's, Dave's more elite offensively. He's done yeah. more, but I'm saying like that kind of brain. They think okay. the game, but Dave's like a much higher competitor, like in the sense that he's he's going to slash you wherever it took. He's going to do whatever, you know. And I'm not that saying Riley doesn't do that. But Riley, Riley for me is fine in that position. What I would do, what I would do is I would put Hyman on the third line. I would so move Kerfoot off that. I'd have Mikhaev, Nash, Hyman. I would then move Thornton up with Austin and Mitch and kind of flip-flop between Kerfoot and him during throughout the game and kind of rotate players on that wing, right? And I would bring I would bring Engvall in and I would put him on the fourth line center and I'd move Spets up to the second line. So So Galchenyuk I, doesn't get in for you. No, no, he doesn't get in. Okay. Because so, I yeah, think we you agree gotta, with some you gotta have someone you, yeah, I, I agree with Galchenyuk in a sense if you want the scoring. Uh-huh. But I feel with losing um with losing John, you're going to need a guy that can fill the center spot if Jason can't do it, right? Or if you have Kerfoot too, but maybe you need more size, right? So I, I feel a little stronger about Engvall up the middle. He can also play the wing, but you put him as the fourth line center at the start. You put Jason on the second line. You put Hyman down to the third, and then you can have Joe on the first line. And when if Joe can't keep up to pace and he can't do that, then Joe can go back to the fourth line. You can put Wayne up there, but all it is with Mitch and, and Austin is about keeping that left winger super fresh, 
in there, causing traffic, getting them the puck and going to the net, not doing much else. And, if, and then again, if Joe tires out or, or Wayne tires out, you just keep rotating guys in there to keep that top line driving. That's what that's what Quenville would do. He would just rotate the, the guys in it who were ever going with the top horses to keep them fresh. Uh, it was tough on guys like myself, but that's what you had to do in order to keep Kane and Taze going. And, and that's what I feel they need to do now. Well, Keith is a tinkerer, and he's done a lot of this in the past, and this was like essentially the way that they were looking for the deadline when they didn't really have the established second-line winger, right? Like, they go with Felino, but this is going to be one of the biggest points of fascination is, like, if the minutes distribution was anything like what we saw in Game 1 and how much of that was a byproduct of chasing the game and how much of it was a, was a byproduct of the just not you you just can't prepare for losing a second line center but like you look at the minutes in that game and I know Felino took the five minute major so you look at that and say maybe that impacts the time on ice but he's under 13 minutes and like that he he only gets a minute more than Simmons that was a little odd to me like Marner's playing over 27 Kerfoot played 17 like everybody's minutes, like Kerfoot played more than a minute, or or more than William Nylander did last night. Like I, I just thought Simmons you're looking played at, more even strength than Felino. Right, you just look at how everything uh, broke down in the shuffle in that one, and you got to think, okay, maybe there's something a little bit different moving in this next game. But that that one, like when you step away and you look at it, it's wild. Like some of the the decision yeah. making when it comes to who was going and who wasn't, and still who played more yeah and you even look at nash right 10 minutes and two yeah. of those two or almost three minutes were shorthanded so okay. they, they really eased him in there especially the first game uh and jason was supposed to be your fourth line center and he plays two minutes more i know he played some power play but it, it, again it, it it shouldn't matter if if jason plays more than riley if he's going he's going you play him but i think the next game they got to go into the into the game, giving Jason the second line center and let him have the ball finally. He's never had the ball yet. Mm-hmm. I hope Jason's texting you after these games and uh, telling you thank you for for promoting me. Thank you for yeah. for being my number one defender. Uh, and eventually, it's going to happen. You would think. Uh, hey, man! I wish I had great stuff on. Anyone has it? Have it over. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> I think you could probably get it. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> great stuff on Instagram. Uh, we really enjoy it. Always enjoy talking to you on here. the radio as well. Thanks, yeah, Chris. Bud. See you, dude. For sure. Take care, guys. See ya. Chris for Stieg. I follow him on Instagram at Stiegalicious uh, and watch him on uh, Sportsnet's NHL coverage. So... If Riley Nash is only trusted to play 10 minutes, that's where I would say, I don't know. So Chris says the draws, and he's you know got a quiet game, and so it's not going to leap off the page. So maybe I'm just being a little overreactionary, but Leafs are a good team this year, and I liked the idea of Riley Nash, and maybe I should just be a little bit more patient or whatever. But it just it, that that line felt way too quiet last night, and not in the best way. Not where it was like, oh well, you want to put them over and you trust them or whatever. But last season, one of the downfalls of the Toronto Maple Leafs was that. Keefe really seemed to only trust three guys, and he put them all on a line together. He trusted Tavares, Matthews, and Marner. And you look at this team now, and you look at the minutes distribution last night, and again, there's mitigating circumstances to this for everything. 
you can find a reason stemming from the Tavares incident to explain just about everything with the forward group. But the entire, you, you know, you look at this thing in its entirety and it's really telling you that there's not a lot of guys that he trusts. And playing Mitch Marner 27 minutes, like that is obviously not a sustainable or plausible way forward. Like you just can't do it. And that's why I didn't really want to criticize Marner's game is because it's hard to say, well, Mitch should have been a lot better when he's playing 27 minutes and you've got him out there for so long that I'm like, well, maybe he flipped the puck over the glass because he's just got no oxygen in his brain because he's playing way, way, way too much. And again, the last four minutes, losing Tavares, everything, 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 mixing in a new center, all of these things, chasing the game, the, in, the, the fight with Felino, all that stuff. But we're going to find out who Sheldon Keefe trusts. And it's cliche, but some guys are going to have to step up and some guys are going to have to, I guess, prove that to him still, even after that regular season. There's guys out there like Jason Spezza who we all, I think, are very, very big fans of and who we all believe should get that second-line center opportunity. Um, whatever it is that is quite missing, uh, like I guess he's still going to have to prove it. It seems that you would want to bring somebody else in that can play that second-line center role because it's not whatever they end up doing for game two feels like it's not a 60-minute thing. That, like, well, Engvall has to come here. Like, there's just no doubt about it. Like, Engvall is obviously the number one replacement who's stepping in here, and he's got, he's got to play minutes. Like, a lot of people are advocating for Adam Brooks. Uh, I've seen that a lot on the text line today. I've seen that in my DMs uh, on both Twitter and Instagram. Like, I... I just don't think that Brooks is jumping the queue on Engvall. And Engvall scored a bunch of goals down the stretch. He looked better. There was moments with that meth line. Like, I think that there's some chemistry that you could go to it. That's Honestly, that's my, like, number one case for it more than it is, like, taking Riley Nash to the lineup. Or even have Riley Nash, like Versteeg said, center the fourth line if, if you want to only play him 10 minutes a night anyways and you want to have him for penalty kill purposes. But um, I, I just know that that meth line worked. And there's a lot of length to that line. And... Uh, there was some scoring pop. They felt dangerous in moments, and they also felt defensively responsible. So it's just like, to me, that one looks okay. And then, again, you're trying to juggle and shuffle around your top two lines, which is not comfortable, but something that you got to be looking for, whether it's Kerfoot on the wing up there, whether it's Spezza in the middle up there, whether it's bringing Galchenyuk into the lineup and giving him a look, whether it's Thornton up there. Like I, I just think that you're searching. You're searching to find something, but you're happy with the fact that you at least have enough capable guys who – you're searching in a way that is better than a season ago where you just didn't really have anything from, like, the Andreas Janssens. No, or you were uh, leaning on Mikheyev for offense. Dude, this is what it comes down to, is that, I mean, maybe I'll be singing in a different tune after Saturday, but at this point, mm -hmm. I'm not yet worried about offense. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm okay. really not. Uh, and, yeah, again, I guess we could come on this show on Monday, which we will have, by the way, on Holiday Monday. We'll be uh, bringing you a radio program after uh, game two on Saturday. Um, and maybe I'll be saying something different. But at this point, I think Leafs created enough, even without John Tavares, even in that weird circumstance of a game with all the shorthanded minutes that they played, that I think the offense will be fine. All right. We're getting back to hockey. And uh, part of the reason we're able to do that is this great, 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 great news. Mm-hmm that is being passed along as we speak. That just happened during the break. Uh, this from the Toronto Maple Leafs. 
Toronto Maple Leafs captain John Tavares has been discharged from the hospital this morning. He was thoroughly examined and assessed by the neurosurgical team at St. Michael's Hospital and the club's medical director. He was kept overnight for observation, is now resting at home under the care and supervision of team physicians. Tavares will be out indefinitely. So that's awesome. Like he's from a, a, a human level, not in the hospital. Got to figure that means good things from like an overall seriousness of the injury concern. Mm-hmm. The hockey part for him is secondary, but for us, it makes it a lot easier to talk about this hockey team knowing that he's okay. Of course. Uh, so much of why you felt sick in that game was wondering, for me anyways, whether or not he broke his neck, man, or whether he broke something in his neck or that he wasn't going to be okay. And, you know, you don't post things like that on social media. I don't really appreciate when it's out there, when people express that like publicly until something has happened where you start to speculate and think of the worst and do whatever. But it was impossible to have not watched that injury and think about the type of trauma that he could have sustained to his head, his neck, his, his vertebrae. Like, so honestly, I'm sorry. A part of my viewing experience, I was uneasy about sharing off the top of the show because it was like I felt good about the things that were being said about him in hospital but mm-hmm. there was no certainty and he was still in hospital so I didn't share them and I'll share them no. with you now that in that moment uh, and when he tried to get up and I have not gone back in my DVR to watch it I've only seen the replays no. which did not show this part when he tried to get up I didn't know where that blood that was, was coming part. from yeah, I, no. I thought there was blood coming out of his eyes and I said this in my in my bedroom to my wife and my children were around. I was like, what's going on? Like, I, I yeah, I, I didn't know whether we were watching a man die on the ice. Like, it was that vicious and that horrific looking. But thank goodness the human body can withstand incredible, incredible trauma. It kind of reminds me of, you ever been to the Science Center and look at, like, the, the there's, like, a physics display where there's a player wearing a hockey helmet and every... 30 seconds or something, a big hammer comes down and hits it, and it, you see the torque of the person's... Like, the human body can withstand quite a bit, it turns out. It was sickening watching him lay on the ice. It was sickening watching him get up. I think that the blood that we saw was probably his helmet had cut him somewhere on his head. Maybe, or his nose but or something. Yeah, well, yeah. I It looked higher, but... I got to figure that it was helmet, that impact, some part of his helmet cut his head. And when you, if anybody's ever been cut in the head, you know that even the smallest nick there, you end up usually bleeding a lot. So now that he's out of the hospital, you know that some of the things that you feared, the, the biggest fears, they're, they're gone, right? Mm-hmm. You feel good about that. Who knows when he's going to be back? I don't really think that we're going to be thinking about that right now, but I will say this. And, and I know okay, we got Craig Simpson online now, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about this as well. But I think tr- I think John Tavares has been underappreciated by this fan base for a while. And I know this is kind of like a morbid way of thinking about it, but I, I do believe that now having to reconcile with not having him for a series or for a bunch of games and do-or-die games is going to make people realize what kind of a hockey player this guy is to a certain degree. I, I know that some of that is straw manning. A lot of people know that he's an important player, and I, I, like, I can see you, but Tavares plays behind Austin Matthews, who is the most popular player in the market, and there's no doubt about it, and we've had a billion takes about 
uh, who should be the actual captain based on play and all of these different things. But I, I really do think that this is a case of you don't know what you've got till it's gone and that ultimately Tavares, when he comes back, is going to be, I believe, treated a little differently by the fan base at large. Don't assume you know my reaction just because of my facial expression. I was going to agree with you. Yeah, that like the drop-off from John Tavares to Alex Kerfoot. Yeah, a little steep. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, steep. let's talk <laughs> Let's talk to uh, Craig Simpson, who's on the call yesterday's game, Hockey Night in Canada, the NHL and Sportsnet. How's it going, Craig? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing a, a lot better hearing this news that John Tavares is, is back at home. Uh, you've seen it all in this game as a player and then as a broadcaster. That felt like something I'd never seen before. What, what was it like? to be there in that eerie arena with no fans and to have that happen. Yeah, it's, it's really uncomfortable. And, and the thing, you know, all the last year and a half, uh, the playoff bubble, and then now again here, it's just, it's a reminder how with the lack of fans, just how, how incredibly silent it can be in a, in a building that usually has such energy and, and uh, you know, loud uh, noises in it. And it was so disturbing though because obviously John when he came to was struggling and fighting to try to get up and they're trying to keep him down you know all those things that even with a buzz of 20,000 people in there you normally wouldn't hear well it was like you know like a pin drop you could hear in there so that that was you know the most disturbing I, I thought last year in the bubble when Muzzin went down it was a real reminder of just how quiet and how much you worry about the safety of a player but this took it to a completely different level and it's it's hard to really even react i think at times silence is better than maybe saying something that uh, is not appropriate you're always thinking of the players mom dad you know wife kids all, all those things so that becomes the most important is how how is the player getting through this and that was a pretty scary moment to go through no, I thought you and, and Chris did a great job of handling it in the moment. There's no proper way to handle it. And I think you, like fans too, were just waiting to get to that break to, to give yourselves a moment and get to the end of the yeah. period. I, I know I was, uh, and I'm sure the players were as well. But you guys did a, a great job. And it's it's just uh, – I, I honestly feel like a cloud has been lifted from – uh, just the conversation about this series and this team, knowing that John Tavares is out of the hospital and at least from a human level going to mm-hmm. be okay. I mean, there's still probably concussion issues and we shouldn't make like light of that. But what it could have been, uh, I think uh, we're all breathing a sigh of relief. So let's talk about the, the thing that JD brought up um, leading into this about the underappreciated nature of John Tavares and where he fits into this team and the success that they've had because we're going through the options of who could fill his role and it's not the same league as what we're talking yeah. about with John Tavares. No, it's not. And, you, you know, you look at how you make your team up and you always are, are trying to have depth and balance. And what John does on a daily basis is just give you a reliable play every every game. You know, there are – I listened to just the last few minutes of what you were talking about and – you know, there's always going to be players that have popularity and players that are going to get the accolades and rightly so as they should. But you know, as a as a team, guys that fit and guys that are glue players and guys that you can rely upon. Uh, and you know, it's not like John hasn't been productive in his time here offensively too. But it just changes. I, you know, I, I've lived it as a assistant coach where you're looking up at your board. 
And when suddenly somebody's taken out of the mix, your lines just become so much more difficult to have balance on. And, you know, that's the biggest loss with John is you never have to worry about a matchup when you've got him in that second spot. Uh, and as a coach like Sheldon, especially the way you, you have to deal with in a playoff series, that becomes so important. And that's where all of a sudden you're looking at that lineup board and saying, okay, where can I find that balance again? And that, that's a really big hole, not having 91 in, in that role. It's massive. And we already have to accept that you're not going to get anything close to it, but where do you start to try to fill it? Like if it's you and you are looking at that board, how do you start with your top six? Yeah, I think, you know, I heard you, Kerfoot's a, a guy that has tried to sort of fit in a couple of different areas, but just from a, from a, uh, you know, trust and faith, it, it just changes things having him in that role. It, it's not nearly the same. You, not that Montreal creates a lot of really difficult matchups, maybe better than if you were playing Winnipeg or playing Edmonton with the kind of matchup uh, potential that they have, because let's face it, guys, Montreal, you look at their ice time, they, they're pretty much a four-line team trying to keep everybody in there. So it might help them the fact that they have Montreal to deal with right now from a matchup standpoint. Uh, I, I think you're probably going to spend the day if you're Sheldon Keefe debating and uh, looking through. I do think a guy that probably should come in is a guy like Adam Brooks. I, I just think he has a potential to chip in a little bit offensively. He's another player who can play you know, some key face-offs can kill penalties, can be on the power play if you need to, if you have a different look. And uh, I know from a coach's perspective, you're always looking, can I, can I trust the guy in situations? There's no question. I know it was at the American League level, uh, but Sheldon has some faith in Brooks. And uh, I just think what you're looking for, guys, is some reliability of uh, shuffling a couple of guys in there. I think there's times where you could have Kerfoot in that role, but I'm not sure that he's an everyday, you know, second-line centerman position there. So I think you might have to be a combination of different looks to try to fill that gap that you lose with Tavares out of there. So are you talking about Brooks deeper down the lineup and maybe a guy like a Spezza, or are you talking about Brooks in that second-line center role? Like, where, where are you talking about with Brooks? No, but I, I think if, if you slide in uh, if you slide in uh, Kerfoot in that role, I, I don't think you can be relying upon him on a full game. So, no. you know, I do think that you'll go up and down the lineup. You might change it as the game goes along. Uh, if it's not working, you have to have another option, right? So that, that's the one thing. If you don't have another guy like Brooks coming into the lineup, then, like, let's say you don't put Brooks and you put uh, Galchenyuk to try to play on the wing, he can slot in there. If things don't go well in the middle or if you get another injury in the, at, at the center position or somebody gets banged up, you're just far too skinny there. And, and that's what I mean. I, I think what you always are trying to fill – your roster with are guys who can fit a role when they need to within the game. And that's where Brooks allows you to move Spets up every now and then if you have to, or even, you know, Joe to a lesser degree, because I, I just don't think that the pace that he can keep up in that role. 
So to me, he's an important guy because he gives you that reliability as a coach that you can play him in different roles. And you always have to, like, look at Marner goes out with a, a penalty. Now you lose a key penalty killer. You need another guy who can jump into that role if, if need be. And I, I just think Brooks is a guy that fits that role. We talked to Nick Kiprios yesterday, Craig, about the understated storyline of this series, and he mentioned Sheldon Keefe. And we had a discussion about how usually being the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, it's very loud. Um, there's a lot of noise around you. There's a lot of noise around your decisions. And that it's kind of a good thing when nobody's talking about you. It's like being a stay-at-home defenseman. Like the, the quieter it is around you, the better your play is probably. Same goes for the coach of the Leafs. And now all of a sudden you are outlining these scenarios that I think we all agree with, which is a guy who has, has historically been a tinkerer, someone who is someone who, yeah. uh, who likes to make adjustments on the fly and thinks a little bit differently. I think maybe sometimes a little bit to an overstated degree, but either way, someone who's very welcoming of new ideas and, and making a, these adjustments during a game is put in a position where everything gets thrown into the blender heading into game two. And now I'm wondering how much of this series is just going to become noise around Keefe and the outcome of it ultimately is going to be centered around whether or not he made the right decisions with his lines. Well, let's face it. The the only time you don't get criticism is if you're Stanley Cup champs, right? So I, I think you could say that of any coach going into a playoff uh, round. You know, even Dom Ducharme could have been the criticized one had his team faltered and they didn't get enough, you know, out of the decisions that he made with keeping Caulfield out of the lineup and going with a bit of more of experienced group. So, I mean, that's part and parcel with making the decisions as your head coach. And some might even be the right decisions, but things go wrong. You know, you, you can't go into a game and expecting to lose John Tavares in the first period and having the emotions that it did with your team. So I just think, I don't, I honestly don't think coaches ever really think about those kind of things. That's maybe a discussion from people. The bottom line is you got to assess what happened. I say he made a decision with Sandine to put him in and you say, okay, he's a minus two. He gets uh, beat on a tough play at the end of a power play. You know, maybe you make an adjustment there. Those are the kind of plays that from a team perspective, you got to know that whoever is in the lineup, you got to have faith and you got to play that game the way it, it, it's going to present itself there. I, I thought last night, I, I didn't think William Nylander played enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought he was probably the most effective with the puck um, uh, during the game. And you look at the end of the day, I, I think star players are always the ones who will be criticized when things don't go well. And if I'm a top guy in a game that you couldn't get any offense and I was generating it and I had, you know, 16 minutes, I feel I, I got to get out there a little bit more. So those are the kind of things that coaches are going to be looked at. Uh, I think once you make your lineup decision, then you got to just live with it and, and make the best adjustments you can in, in game. Yeah. And yeah, you have to show trust to some of your star players. And I, I thought the same thing with Nylander. Like the second period he played was among his best as a Toronto Maple Leaf. And, yeah, it was pretty surprising to see that 16 number next to his name when when the game had finished. And, again, there's some situations with it, and we'll see how this plays out throughout the rest of the series. But, yeah, no, they're going to have to lean on some of their better players. And you hear it from 
uh, top six players all the time, which is, you know, you feel better when you have more ice time and you have more trust. So they're, they're going to have to lean on Nylander in a different way. The, the question we pose when it comes to shuffling your lineup, though, too, is do you break up that top line? Do you try and find something else by reuniting Hyman with some guys on the third and hoping that you get a little bit more of uh, an offensive punch for that group? Or do you leave the top line status quo and just trust that they are going to dominate and eventually find a way to break through the like because again if you look at the shot share numbers and the and the possession numbers the expected goals for everything with that line and just the eye test in general they were great they were one of the biggest reasons to believe in toronto moving forward yeah and i think it was a difficult game for hyman too. remember when when you've got a knee injury and you're rehabbing you're not anywhere like even a brendan gallagher with a thumb right like your legs are the hardest things to stay on top I, I thought he wasn't quite as dynamic as he usually is but rightly so he's been off and not being able to get up to speed so I, I don't mind with the the tinkering with Hyman up there if you need to balance out maybe a checking line and move him down you know we've seen at times uh, whether it's Kerfoot in with Mikheyev and Hyman or Engvall with Mikheyev and uh, Hyman you might have to tinker a little bit there uh, because you have seen Felino's been able to play with those guys up top. Uh, even Galchenyuk would maybe have an opportunity to play up with those. I, I just think you, you're not going to go all of a sudden tinker with Matthews Marner, but I don't think there's any question when you look at the depth up and down the lineup, that might be something that Sheldon has to do with uh, potentially moving Hyman down to make the, the lower lines a little bit stronger. Uh, talking to Craig Simpson, you mentioned – uh, Dom Ducharme's decision not to play Cole Caulfield in that game, Casper uh, Cut and Yemi as well, and Romanov yeah. not in that game. It worked out well on the scoreboard. Uh, they didn't create a lot, though. Five on five, it must be said. W- what do you make of that decision now in, in retrospect, having seen that game? Well, I, I said it actually uh, before when in our production meetings. I said, I, I understand the thinking. I, they know that they've got a dynamic guy in Cole Caulfield. you, you got to remember, you're you're also looking at a young kid that is, is anxious, wants to play, is excited. You know he's a gamer, and I love the Lafleur comments. You know, those are the kind of guys that you're going to need and, and going to put in a position where maybe they can make something special happen. But I, I thought the one thing that you looked at going into this was get a guy that stays hungry. I think if you listen to Ducharme, he said, we are going to play with 14 to 15 forwards and seven to eight defense, and we're going to be making changes. So you're sending the message to him that this isn't a banishment from anything that you've done. This is an opportunity to look at the difference of playoff hockey, sit in the stands for one and be kind of pissed off and feeling like you should be playing and being motivated. He's a smart guy and he'll maybe watch the game a little bit differently and say, Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Look at those battles. And you know that now you've given your veteran guys an opportunity, you know, you get stall who hasn't been very good at all, actually had a really good and productive game one. And you might've actually lost him and not allowed him to show that he could maybe bring his game up at a veteran level to be effective. So I I think the messaging for Ducharme has been to a guy like Caulfield and Kokkinyemi, we're going to need you. Don't look at this as a banishment. You're going to be done. Motivate yourself from it. Learn from it. And for Caulfield, you're not putting him in a position where he gets blown up and gets hit hard and maybe gets a little rattled early. 
when he does get his chance, man, he's going to be shot out of a cannon because you know he's going to want to prove that he can play, and you know he's got a better sense of what playoff hockey's all about. Probably going to take a, a loss in the series, though, to get him in because uh, you don't want to mess with that line. Yeah, uh, well, I would think so. In the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Craig, uh, again, great job uh, yesterday. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for making time. All right, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Y- you too. Bye-bye. Craig Simpson. So now that we know Tavares is home and that he is, I hope anyways, um, on the path to recovery, uh, that there's not going to be a surgery, there's not going to be anything that is scary enough to keep him in hospital, that it, it does provide a little bit more um, yeah, relief in talking about just the, the hockey in this series. And, and I would say that, that what we discussed with Sheldon Keefe to me now is the number one storyline of game two, which is, of course, how the team responds, the guys on the ice, all those things, right? But how he responds from a lineup standpoint and whether or not there are some overreactions to guys, whether or not he's putting a ton of emphasis in, uh, it's a must-win game. Like, I know that we can overstate that sometimes and you you, you can say, well, the must-win game is when you actually need to be eliminated. But no, you got to win game two. You lose both games at home, you got to head back to Montreal. It's real problem time. I think if I'm being honest, like based on first game, the real tricky one, if we're doing just a discussion of what we really think, is for me anyways, is Joe Thornton. Like, he has the two goal, the the two goals against where he's on the ice. And yeah, okay, you can bring him up the lineup, you can do certain things. And do I like seeing Joe Thornton out there? Do I think that it's important to have Joe Thornton in the room? Like, of course, all those things. Do I think he can be more effective than he was in game one? Absolutely. But I just... I have a hard time believing that he's a better player right now than Alex Galchenyuk is. Like, they need to insert Engvall, right? I think we universally agree that the guy who needs to step in the lineup, there's some people who would say Adam Brooks, right? And that's okay. A center. They need somebody that they they can play center. To me, I think Pierre Engvall has done more throughout his career and this season to prove that he is more adept at handling heavier minutes and he can do things for you like kill penalties so, to me, it's Engvall that goes in without a question. Engvall steps into the lineup. You need the center depth, all the things. We've outlined a million of them. The question is, is whether there's a second move. I'm kind of coming around, i got to say, more to your line of thinking that you started the show with, which is, hey, don't overreact. You were the better team. You had more uh, expected outcomes. And if you start trying to shuffle things around too early in the series, it does feel panicky and you don't know how it's going to resonate with the rest of the group, blah, 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 blah. So I think maybe this game you do just come back with Engvall. But now without that potential goal scoring of Tavares, I, I just I do feel more of a need to get a guy like Alex Galchenyuk in the lineup. And I, I just do see a fit in the top six if you move Hyman down, where you say you get to play with the top line, and we will move you around and we will shelter you in moments and we will cycle that thing through if you play, like Versteeg's talked about this, right? Where he says, you know, when he was with Quenville, if he had a bad shift or two bad shifts, that he wasn't going to be seeing as much ice. So that's kind of the parameters with Galchenyuk. But I, I just think that you can make your lineup a lot more versatile right now if you decide to move Hyman down. And if you also take a little pressure off Hyman, who... Yeah, he is coming back from a knee injury. He played over 20 minutes this game and hard minutes, getting cross-checked in the back minutes, getting eviscerated behind the net minutes. So the idea that you can bump him up in some scenarios with that group but then also take him down the lineup and try to give you a little bit of punch if you need it, I think Galchenyuk is kind of important to that. So I don't know. 
it's hard to pick a guy that comes out. Hard to pick a guy that comes out. But if it, if we're being honest, to me, it would be either Simmons or Thornton. And uh, it's a really tough call to make for that team if, if they need to make it. Well, I think the things that we're saying about Jason Spezza maybe deserving more ice time and, and moving up the lineup and getting some shifts with that second line are obviously not being said about Joe Thornton. Joe Thornton might be just getting overexposed. They had a couple he of did. offensive zone. Cost them the first shifts. goal. Yeah, he's getting overexposed for sure. Um, yeah, we'll see what adjustments Sheldon Keeps makes because the attention is clearly shifting to him. Uh, but I do think I'm with you. I think I'm with you in the sense of you you go with the team that got you here, essentially. You yeah. go with everything essentially the same. Other than the potential for the Hyman switch to the third line and then have the rotating door of left winger with the top group, I think that you you stay with the roster the same way. You just insert Engvall and Tavares is out. I, I'm with you on that, I think, right now. Like, I'm not going to be upset if Alex Galchenyuk doesn't come in for game two, even if I think there's a case he should. Yeah, and the idea that there might be some excuse now for the Leafs because they lost their captain is insane. It's asinine. It's it's not correct. No. It's a massive, massive Some blow. people will make it. It's a huge blow. Some people will make it, but no. Dude, what what was Gallagher's ice time last night? Yeah, I don't know. He was not uh, very visible. Yeah. Gallagher played 14 minutes. He's their best player. <laughs> he is not fully right. Maybe he gets there throughout the series, and obviously you'd rather have 14 minutes of a compromised Tavares over a zero Tavares, but this is just, that's the playoffs. Injuries are a part of it. So, no, I, I don't think that you can make an excuse for the Leafs losing that game last night because Tavares wasn't there. Yeah. If they lose in a game seven, people will always point to that. There will be a certain faction of the Leafs fan base that will point to that. You will be able to tell yourself as a Leafs fan or a GM or whatever moving forward whether or not you're going to make drastic changes in the offseason because of that. I do, but from a me protecting myself standpoint to a Montreal Canadiens fan who wants to let me have it, like, no, 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 game two is game two. It is what it is. All right, let's take a break and talk to the uh, man who's played the most games ever in the history of the National Hockey League. His name is Patrick That's pretty Mono, good. He knows the, that's a good stat. I like that's well. a That's a pretty good stat to have, I would say, among yeah, all the stats. Uh, uh, Patrick Marlowe next. Uh, good show continues. Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Song's not hitting the same today. <laughs> it's a little better now that, that, that John's back home. But yeah, <laughs> I didn't do my I'm not looking forward Rebecca to Rebecca Black thing. <laughs> no. Come on. Come on, Edge. You know what? We need no. to bring Edge back on to give you another pump-up speech. No, no I, I delivered a pump-up speech at the very beginning of this show. I told you. Well, you're supposed to, but again, I always forget no, that your brain is completely fried and you're in incapable of remembering anything else that's in front of you. No, I truly, I've told you, I believe that this team is mature. I believe that this team is positioned to sustain this. I think that they're tougher, and I mean that in a way that they are better positioned to come back and, and face adversity like this, and I, I still believe that they are the more talented team. Um and that they should come out on top of this series. Uh, a guy who knows even better than me is a guy who's played with a bunch of these guys. It's Patrick Marlowe, the holder of the most games played in NHL history. Uh, Patty, thanks for doing this, man. This is, uh, this is great of you to join us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, you would know, uh, as he said, about the core of this team and, and the conversations that are happening, not just in the intermissions there, but in the off days after that performance. Um, how equipped is, th is this team to, to get over what was very disappointing, very gut-wrenching loss yesterday? Yeah, I think, 
that was that was a tough game to to be a part of. I'm pretty sure, and um, you know, uh, to see JT go down like that obviously can rattle a lot of guys. But uh, um, you know, hoping for for a speedy recovery from him. But I think uh, you know the, the guys that the Leafs have, the guys that they brought in, the veteran guys, uh, guys who have been around for a while now. Um, and been in playoffs, you know, you get that experience, you get the, you know, that the unexpected things can happen in playoffs, and when it does, and, you know, other people have to step up and, and uh, you know, fill, fill that void. So it's, uh, they, they have the guys in, in the locker room that I think can do that, and, you know, it's uh, that's the, the challenge that they have right now. I'm sure you knew before many of us, but just in case you hadn't heard, John was discharged from the hospital, so he is home, which we have to anticipate is a somewhat good sign, just the fact that, you know, uh, your your mind starts spinning through the worst possible scenarios when this happens. But, yeah, like, I, I heard Wayne Simmons speak during the intermission, and he just said, you know, that they had to regroup during the intermission. And... I just I have a hard time believing how something like that can even happen during a game where you have to have such intense focus on it. And I, like again, I, this isn't trying to make excuses or anything, but I, I felt sick the entire game, and most people expressed a similar sentiment where it was just like it was hard to watch the hockey knowing that that happened. And yes, okay, veterans are in the room and guys are trying to speak and guys are trying to regain composure and win a game for Tavares, but. Like, is there any way of expressing just how difficult it is to shake those feelings, especially when it is somebody that, you know, you really care about outside of hockey and that happens and you're waiting for news just like the rest of us? Yeah, it's it's always it's kind of in the back of your head. You kind of when you're out on the ice, you're trying to, you know, it's probably pretty easy once you're in the game to kind of forget about it because it's a fast game out there and you got to be on your toes. But I think, when, you know, when you get that second back on the bench and, you know, your mind starts wandering or, or you know, when something like that happens, it, it's always in your mind um, uh, during that game until until you know, like, that he's going to be okay and, you know, things are going to be be all right. So, uh, you know, it's it's that mental challenge where, you know, things happen like in, in a game like that um, and, it, and you got to be able to, Put it aside when you're on that ice and, and get your job done. It's it's easier said than done, that's for sure. But it's uh, it's you know one of those things that's that's in the game. So um, I know it's a little bit more of a difficult question to answer when you're not with this group now in the day to day. But you played with a lot of these guys, and and I wonder who you think speaks up during an intermission like that. Uh, yeah, I, I'd probably say I'd be. I think it'd be. A lot of guys speaking up. Uh, I think Morgan Riley would probably be speaking up. Um, you know, I, get, I, I know you said I haven't been in the room in a while, but I, I, I've, I've been with a lot of even like uh, Maddie and and and, and Mitch. Uh, you know, those are guys that were there when I was there, so I, I can see them. You know, speaking up and saying something. And I think, it, you know, everybody's feeling the same thing. So the more guys that speak up and, and say something in the locker room during the intermission, you know, you kind of you know, pull together. And I think there, I think there was probably a lot of guys speaking up in, in that locker room uh, during that intermission, trying to, you know, set, refocus like, like, like you were saying. Yeah, no doubt. And they did a pretty good job because the second period was their best period of the hockey game and they, they, they tied the game up. Uh, and yeah, still, I would say for the 60 minutes outplayed the Montreal Canadiens, but they're down one game to none. Um, one of the guys they, they added to this team who has, who's, 
playoff hardened is as your good friend Joe Thornton. What do you think his role is here from a maybe outside of hockey perspective uh, in between games? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, you know he, during having played with Jumbo and, and during playoffs, it's uh, it's always uh, what the, that next game. Once that game's over, what can we get better at? What can we do? Um, how can we get? How can we win the next game? So it's always that that focus of uh, of getting better and uh, winning that next game. So I think you got to you know we can't let things linger or things. Uh, Faster, if in your personal game or in your team game, you gotta you know nip things in the bud right away and, and uh, get ready for that next game and, and, and try and you know even up the series. So, so what is that by your estimation? Like from from your vantage point, how, how do they get better for game two? Um, you know, I think probably a lot of the, the same. I think uh, obviously Carey Price was uh, you know was outstanding again last game. Um, I I wasn't able to watch the whole game as I was at my my son's baseball game. I I caught most of the highlights, but uh, um, yeah, I I I think uh, you know when you're playing against a team with a hot goalie, it's it's going to be qual qu- uh, quantity and quality shots and and getting people uh, in his eyes, so it makes things tougher on him. So I think that's probably one of one of the main things that they'll be talking about. So one of the main things that we've been talking about is power play, which has struggled all season long. And, yeah, you're someone who's scored 163 of those in your career. Um, I, I, we, I don't need to ask you about, like, the X's and O's for the Leafs because, again, like, you had your own team this year. You're playing this own team. You know, you're at your son's baseball game. You got a lot else. Uh, I'm not expecting that you're watching this team on a day-to-day basis, although you're probably tracking some of the stories. I'm just more curious about how much of this can get mental when a power play struggling is struggling because they have six goals – for that power play since they play, faced the Oilers in the middle of the season and they've given up six against. And, you know, when, when you're seeing it right now, we were talking to Christopher Steeg earlier in the show. He was mentioning stuff that, like, all of a sudden you start to lose the first draw or the first clear or a zone entry that these things can just feel so much worse as they go on and on and on and it starts to compound itself. Is, is that the way that you feel about it, that a lot of this is just mental? Because they have so much talent. Yeah, it, it definitely can get mental. I think um, when things aren't going well for for a power play or or things like that, I think it's always good to go back to the foundation of your power play, what you want to accomplish, um, whether that be build momentum. Uh, obviously, get goal getting goals is the the, the, the ultimate goal, but it, even if you get that momentum from a good power play, I think that's that's key. But if you don't want to lose momentum by having a you know a crappy power play so yeah. um getting back to the, their foundation uh what they want to accomplish whether it's uh, working things up high getting shots through getting second chances um how they want to move the puck around and, and get their opportunities as long as they're doing those things and, and feeling good about themselves and getting that momentum i think the power play you know holds a purpose but but uh you can't let it have uh, have an effect, a negative effect on on your game and um, that's what you're talking about with, with the mental side of things. So um, it, it, it is a big, uh, you know, special teams is a huge part, especially in, in the playoffs. So it is a big part of the game. But, uh, you know, revisiting what makes your unit successful is probably the best thing to do and, uh, and to, you know, simplify things. 
So your relationships with Matthews and Marner are very, very well documented, and also your track record as the NHL's Ironman and also just someone who is ahead of his time from a conditioning standpoint is also just like a part of knowing the Patrick Marlowe story. And I don't know if you saw the box score at the end of the game, but Marner played almost 28 minutes, Matthews played 24, Hyman almost 25 do you think that, like, again, these guys are young guys and they have had great seasons, but do you anticipate something like that to linger into a game two when, again, you're going to have to lean on those players extremely heavily and Sheldon Keefe has shown a propensity to say I, I he rides the horses? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as far as those guys, I think there's no shortage of energy and they want to be out there and they want to you know, be in those key situations at all times, so... I don't think that's going to be an issue. I think those guys can handle those minutes. Um, <laughs> I don't know Mitch. Mitchie's like the energizer bunny out there, and you know Maddie. Maddie's so good at uh, managing his game and going to the right right spots, the right positions. Um, yeah, I think they they can handle it. I think uh, you know they're going to get their their rest between games, and as long as they're taking care of themselves, you know those are those are minutes that they they can play. Obviously, probably don't want to be playing that many each and every night but if it comes to it i believe those guys can do it yeah uh i've spent too long advocating for more minutes for them that i'm not going to go the opposite way here i'm going to be all right with them playing uh, as many minutes as possible because uh they're quite good and quite young um there's there's obviously some roster decisions that have to be made before saturday because john Tavares is not going to play in that game who knows when he's going to get back and again that's secondary to his health and seems to be okay but we talked about this as well that at least could have easily won that game, and I don't know how far away from what they've done this season you want to get away from. Is there is there a risk of Sheldon Keefe making too drastic a move that sends a message to these players that holy cow, like this is something uh, not anticipated, and there's some 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 urgency to the moves I'm making. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty pretty early to be sending that message. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, and depending on what he does, how many people he moves, but um, yeah, I think it, it's pretty early for for that. He'd have to be pulling, you know, two or three guys out of the lineup or, or something like that. And I don't think that would be the case. But uh, yeah, I think uh, you know whoever he adds in in JT's spot will have to come in, and, and uh, everybody's going to kind of have to pull up pull up their socks and, and pull up the slack that that's uh, missing with JT out of the lineup. So you've said that Marner and Matthews are going to be able to handle these minutes and that Matthews handles his game well and Marner is the energizer bunny. But when you see those guys now, and again, like we can talk about all these different things about the series, but no one's probably going to determine the outcome for Toronto more than those two, uh, especially now moving forward without Tavares. Is there one area in particular with either of them where you have seen you know, a lot of growth or that you think about when it comes to growth for either one, for both, compared to when you played with them? Um, yeah, actually, I think I think uh, Maddie's been, uh, you know, kind of evolved his game uh, since since I've been there uh, on both sides of the puck. Um, it was always, always very strong, but you can just see probably the confidence in it. And I think Mitchie's already kind of been he's been at that that spot for a while and he just keeps honing his skills but i think maddie's taken a lot 
some some big steps since since I've been there, uh, especially as as a centerman and and playing in all those key situations now. Uh, Patrick, we appreciate the time, and I'm sorry you have no possessions left because they're all in the Hall of Fame. They keep taking stuff. Away. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to suit up. Next. Me, you have no equipment left. Yeah. yeah. yeah Thanks, tough. Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> See you, man. Yeah. See you, Patrick Marlowe. Uh, most games ever played in the history of the National Hockey League, 1,779. So we have an update from CJ, which is if you're looking at the practice lines today, Engvall and Galchenyuk look like they're going to be in game two. And Riley Nash was practicing as the extra. So oh. that's what I said earlier in the day. Uh, that's what I would have done. That was what I think makes the most sense. Um, I didn't want them to overreact, but Riley Nash didn't really have a lot of chemistry with those players. And if you're only going to play Riley Nash for 10 minutes, um, I don't know why you would like it's just as risky when you're saying hey well don't overreact to one game don't overreact and don't shuffle yeah, that was his first game as a leaf thank you so putting him in there was probably <laughs> the like riskiest move of Sheldon Keefe's decisions yesterday so that's fine he comes out you put Engvall in his spot you put Kerfoot up to the second line you bump Hyman down to the third you put Galchenyuk on line one or you put Felino on line one and Galchenyuk on line two, some combination of that. But I, I have a tough time seeing how a Galchenyuk, Nylander, Kerfoot line is hey. going to find more minutes somehow for Nylander and Felino who are lacking in that game. So this this just makes sense to me. And again, like I don't want to just Occam's razor this always because there's so much nuance and there's so many things that we cannot see behind the scenes. But we set it going into the series. One of the things for Sheldon Keefe to do sometimes is just to do the simple thing and to do the thing that makes the most sense. And what probably makes the most sense when you're removing someone who is a 30-goal-plus scorer from your lineup and who is a reliable two-way player is to try to get a little bit of offense back in there, a little bit more punch back into your lineup, even if you had more than the other team. And you really do that by taking out Nash and subbing in those two guys. You just It gives you just a lot more flexibility when it comes to your ability to cycle through different spots and give your team different looks. Because, frankly, if you're putting Riley Nash in as your third-line center, you were searching going into the series anyways. You're going to be searching for the rest of the series, so search with what I think are your best and most versatile and highest upside players. That's all. So I'm going to do the thing that you're going to get mad at me for not doing tomorrow. I'll just do it now. So you were right. You were on it early. You got it right. First guessing had the Riley Nash thing out of the lineup. And, yeah, I have in my notes, it was like the first one. I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't know what number Riley Nash wore. I was like, oh, cool, yeah, because I'd never seen him before, right? Well, it's you know what the other part of this, too, though, is, is like I get having Riley Nash in the lineup a little bit more if you're facing, like, the Oilers and you want to have another guy to go up against Connor McDavid. Mm-hmm. But what what's the line, like, is Riley Nash playing to shut down Nick Suzuki or, uh, right. what, 80%? Uh, Brendan Gallagher, like what? What's the function? I didn't think about Tyler to Tufo- like. They've got talented players who scare you, but they're a four-line team. So where are you trying to find those matchups? The fact that he played ten minutes last night was about as good of an indicator of where he was going to be moving forward. Just because you lost a center and your third-line center played ten minutes, right. that doesn't make any sense. 
So well, it was kind of an thing. easy breadcrumb. Yeah. Options, and you would think, hey, having a center in there, you don't want to take a center out. But no, mm-hmm. like that is the situation, and his – I mean, he's just not an offensive player at all, at all, mm-hmm. at all, at all. The idea of him ever getting within a country mile of the second line was just never going to happen. So you yeah. have to get more options uh, that can play up the lineup. Uh, I needed something positive today. One is Tavares getting to the hospital. Two is being right. And so, yeah, I look forward to texting Christopher Stieg after this. Right. Because he laughed yeah. at me. He went, <laughs> no. No, did he laugh? I mean, I was. He went, <laughs> no. When I said, <laughs> do you I think Rally Nash? I go, <laughs> no. No. Because it was a condescending no. It was a condescending no. Run I it back, Lance. His... Go find me I... that no. Like, <laughs> I was on his side of the argument. I don't mm-hmm. think this is a bad decision. But I, I think if you had framed it in the way now that you're doing that this particular matchup does not necessitate the leaning so hard into the defensive side of your game, that would have been a better argument. You only made that argument now. That's a good one. That's one that I can listen to and and come closer to your side of the aisle on because you're right. There's Organically, the, I don't think you run the risk of the Montreal Canadiens skating circles around you five on five and putting up never five did, goals though. a game. You right. never did, though. And, uh Again, one of the biggest positives to take out of that game was, and I'm not trying to sound like a hockey nerd, but I thought that the blue line was just like good sticks all game, good decision-making all game, just really controlled pace of play well, very few turnovers, very few mistakes, good physical play, good puck battles. Like Blue line played really well. And Jack Campbell, who we barely talked about today for oh. a multitude of reasons, mm-hmm. was uh, there were a couple moments, like very early, where I thought that he looked a little jittery, and then like some happy feet, and then eventually settled in and played a really, really quality game, and felt um, very poised back there, and and validated everything that this fan base thought about, and Sheldon Keefe's decision to go with him. I'll add one final positive before we go into Saturday. PK was very good as well. It's very good. Yeah, their power play. Uh, uh, no, no jinxing. No jinxing. Well, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Just PK leave it was good. Yeah, he was leaving it with that. It was Whatever. a very good take it easy. penalty kill. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll no be jinxing. back on, on Monday and uh, enjoy the long weekend because we'll be back on Monday. We'll be working Monday. Yeah, so you enjoy in. for us. All right. Enjoy All for right. us. Bye bye.